Hi, everybody. It's Defend Molyneux on February the 27th, 2010 at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for the Free Domain Radio Sunday call-in show. Uh, supposed to be dedicated towards the listeners, but uh, I had an email, and uh, I think this fellow wants to chat, which I thought was uh, a great and insightful and, you know, a massive uh, thank you out there. Uh, not that you need it from me, but a massive thank you out there to all of the parents who are writing to me with their dedication to nonviolent parenting, uh, which, you know, it's sort of hard to argue with, but it, it can be tough to implement. So he writes, um, uh, his, uh, his son is uh, 16 months. He says, how do you always be nonviolent with your toddler when they refuse to allow us to brush their teeth? Therefore, we have to hold him down and force the brush. When he refuses to sit in his car seat, when he has a tampon tantrum because he wants to play with the water faucet and splash forever. Oh, I know that one. It seems like some force is necessary. I'd love to know how you as a parent approach these things. I sure hope you do more videos on parenting and discipline or your replacement for discipline. Help, please. Love your mind. Thanks. Dad. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm so sorry. I've been <laughs> buried in other stuff. Uh, I've been meaning to do another philosophical parenting one, so we'll do a, a bit of a one here. And then if you, I think if this dad has any questions, we can, uh, we can talk further about it. So... Uh, yes, there are occasionally times when uh, I have had to restrain my daughter. Uh, no question. Uh, I, I don't like it, of course, but uh, I can think of an occasion when uh, she really needed to have her diaper changed and she really didn't want to have her diaper changed. And that was a time when uh, restraint was used. <laughs> uh, restraint, like holding her down so it could change her diaper. Uh, that has happened um, uh, but that's, I mean, that's exceedingly rare. That's happened maybe five times since she was born and she's a little over two years now. So that is, um, uh, that to me is, I mean, I, I just, I don't think that's a problem to be honest with you. The way that I view it, I mean, to, to analogize it, if this makes any sense, the way that I view it is that she is experiencing a brainstorm of emotionality that of course is unusual for her. Uh, she normally is, you know, a bit resistant to getting changed, but as long as we make it enjoyable, she's okay. And so I think that restraint is appropriate when your child is uh, acting in a way that is against their self-interest. Babies need to be changed and they occasionally will have to go into a car seat uh, and so on. And so I view it as a kind of epilepsy, right? So if someone you love is is having an epileptic attack, you are justified in restraining them. You know, if they're sort of shaking their way towards or flopping their way towards a cliff edge, then you are justified in restraining them. You're not justified in spanking someone for having an epileptic attack. And a, a toddler's emotionality to me is similar to that kind of brainstorming. This is all just my amateur opinion, but this is sort of my experience as a dad and uh, what I've done to approach this problem uh, as a parent. So, so I think there are times where uh, restraint uh, for the safety and security of the child is, is fine. And uh, this is not specific to children. This is a universal rule. So if you see a blind man confidently striding with his headphones on, you see a blind adult confidently striding towards traffic, then you will restrain him. And he will doubtless thank you for that. Uh, and if you didn't restrain him and he got hit, uh, he would doubtless be very upset with you about that. Now, the time frame for recognizing the value of restraining children can be a little bit longer than a blind man walking, about to walk into traffic, but it's still going to be there. So, as I've mentioned before, the key to me is to act in such a way that my child will thank me for in the future. Oh, doesn't that sound like a... Uh, <laughs> a parental thing where you say, you'll thank me for this someday. But I think that's a reasonable approach. 
So uh, obviously we would reduce conflicts with, uh, with Isabella if we didn't brush her teeth because she doesn't particularly like brushing her teeth. She's much better with it now than she used to be. She hated it, hated it, hated it to begin with. So the reality though is that uh, if in, in 10 years uh, she has, or less, right, she has big dental problems which may follow her for the rest of her life, then she would say, geez, I really wish you had uh, really worked with me to brush my teeth when I was a toddler. I didn't have the capacity to express that need then or the brain to process the long-term consequences of not brushing my teeth. I really wish you had taken the lead and done that. So that's an approach that I take. And we did the same thing with sleep training, which was, I think, probably one of the most difficult decisions that uh, we made as, as parents. And uh, so I think, I think that's okay. Now, as far as brushing teeth goes, what, what I focus on is uh, that, um, and what has worked uh, beautifully, is I do not, I, I work as little as humanly possible with the infliction of a negative. Um, I work as much as humanly possible with the withdrawal of a positive, right? So uh, she has a bedtime ritual, which she really enjoys. Uh, you know, we have her milk and we have, uh, we do a, a little game. We may watch a little video and then we'll cuddle and we'll talk about her day and all that kind of stuff. And then she drifts off and she will, I'll take her into her crib. Now that is a very, very enjoyable bedtime ritual for her. It's something that soothes her and calms her down and she really likes it. And so when she, you know, it was, okay, you can have this bedtime ritual or at least some part of it if you brush your teeth. If you don't brush your teeth, it's going to be a quick kiss and a cuddle and then straight into your crib. And I can't, this was about, I'm, you know, parenting memory always gets a little hazy, but you can reason with children a lot earlier than you think. This was, I think, about five or six months ago. Uh, that she wasn't brushing her teeth, wasn't brushing her teeth. And we tried, obviously, a bunch of different things, you know, nice flavored toothpaste and, and uh, you know, a little gum massage or whatever. But uh, she got that, right? So she understood that. So uh, we would say, you know, you brush your teeth or uh, we don't get no cuddles for bed. And when we never actually had to go follow through on it, you know, yay, don't you love that as a parent when you don't have to follow through on it? We didn't actually have to follow through on it. What we did was... We said, if you don't brush your teeth, then no cuddle, uh, straight to bed, more or less. And, I mean, with food and all that. And she, she actually, we were heading to, her, to bed and, and she started crying and she started saying, brush teeth, brush teeth. So she, under, she got it. She understood that that was the consequence of not brushing her teeth. And I think there have been maybe one or two other times where that's been an issue with brushing teeth, but she's been... Uh, just fine with it since then. So, you know, the key thing is, is uh, as I've approached it as a parent, is you need to build up such a store of positive things for your kid that the withdrawal of a positive is a form of, of behavior modification rather than the infliction of a negative, right? So behavior of a positive, no, sorry, withdrawal of a positive is like uh, no uh, extra special treatment. And the infliction of a negative is, uh, you know, some sort of fear response or some sort of aggressive response and so on. So that would be my approach to that. But th that means that you have to build up a whole bunch of positive things with your kid. Uh, and that, uh, of course, is, is good, I think, to do as a parent. You want to enjoy your kid's company and you want them to enjoy your company as much as possible. There are a couple of other things that I would mention around, um, uh, around how to develop a sort of positive and loving and trusting relationship with your child. This is annoyingly obvious, but uh, sometimes uh, I would forget it, so I'm just going to share it with uh, parents or parents-to-be uh, to, to see if it's of any use. 
the first thing, uh, of course, is to store up a lot of positives with your uh, with your child. So that your child really likes your company. Uh, authority, I think, comes from love. I mean, I trust what my wife says. Uh, there are friends that I have that I trust implicitly and take their advice without a lot of frou-frou because I simply trust them uh, so implicitly. And so their authority with me comes from from love. Uh, so uh, that, of course, is is a lot uh, a lot easier than you know and and yelling or whatever. That's that's a lot easier. The second thing is, you know, matter, no matter how teeth-grittingly <laughs> difficult it may be at times, uh, you just you have to keep your word. Uh, children, of course, have particularly when they're toddlers, they have almost no control over their environment. Eh, my daughter can't even get out of the crib. She's just learned how to open doors, though she's still having a bit of problems with the Dudley lock, especially when it's uh, heavily oiled. But um, uh, so so they get frustrated and they guard their self-interest very fiercely because they can't control what they want. My, my daughter wants a balloon. She can't go to the store and get one. And so they, they're very, they guard their uh, self-interest, and their self-interest relies upon you and your trustworthiness, right? So the temptation in the moment is to say to your kid, do this, and you can have X. And then maybe later the kid forgets about X. And like my daughter has these little, little cookies that she likes. They're like baby cookies. There's no sugar in them. And so, you know, occasionally, again, maybe like once a month, uh, if she's really having trouble doing something, it would be like, okay, you know, if you let me uh, finish changing you, uh, then uh, you, can have, you can have a cookie. And then, you know, maybe we'll change and then we'll play for a bit and, and uh, we'll do some letters and then we head downstairs. And maybe she's forgotten about the cookie and the temptation as the parent is to say, I don't really want her to have a cookie, so let's just, you know, let bygones be guy bygones. I think that's a mistake because at some point, your child will remember that, that you were supposed to get a cookie for her. And she will then realize that, if you, that you're not guarding her self-interest, that you're not following up on your commitments, which means that she has to be a bit more hypervigilant about following up on your commitments, which makes her a little bit more, again, it's not catastrophic, but it makes her a little bit more suspicious, a little bit more like I've got to watch this in case something slips through the cracks and makes her a little bit more combative. So, I mean, I remember when we were driving to, I think it was... When I was speaking at uh, the Porcupine Freedom Festival, which you can get 20% off of by going to my Facebook page, I would strongly recommend coming again this year. And we stopped at a hotel, and uh, Isabella wanted to go in the pool, but the pool was uh, closed, so it was just closing. So I said, you know, we'll go swimming in the morning. I, you know, I promise you we'll go swimming in the morning, and she accepted that. And then the next morning dawned, and it was cold. <laughs> I mean, it was it was chilly uh, up there. Uh, I think we were in the White Mountains. It was chilly, and so I was looking at it, thinking, "Oh, she's she hasn't remembered that I promised." So maybe I can get away. And it's like, no, 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 no. Let's not go down that road. And so yeah, I got into my um, <laughs> speedo banana banana hammocks. Actually, I don't have any of those. And uh, then we went we went for a swim. And so she remembered that I'd promised the night before. And so you just you really have to just keep your word, even if your child forgets the promises that you've made, even if you don't want to fulfill those promises, you just have to keep doing that. And that allows the child to relax knowing that, you know, your word is bond and that they don't have to the child doesn't have to watch out for their own interests so much. The second thing to remember, uh, at least that I try to remember is that uh, parenting is like it's like it's like being in the helm of a super tanker, <laughs> and um, uh, and the, the, there's this feeling like okay, well I've turned the wheel, I've changed my behavior as a parent, therefore, the behavior of my child should change. But I have not found that to be the case. What I think is much more true is to say, well, if you're at the helm of a super tanker and you turn the wheel, 
it might take an hour for the ship to turn or start turning or anything like that. And so what happens is, you know, you twitch, you, you turn the wheel and it's like, ah, oh, nothing changes. So you turn it back, you turn it back, you, you try and adjust it more. But I think it's important to remember that the, the habits of interaction between parent and child, uh, you know, they take a long time to build up and they take a long time to change. And I've certainly got this feedback from parents who have uh, committed to non-aggression in their parenting that it takes time and uh, it, it can take a long time to change that. And that is, I think, very, very important to remember. So... Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't had the terrible twos. Uh, she She's, I mean, absolutely the jewel of my heart. She's just, I mean, we're, we're immensely lucky to have uh, to have Isabella. Uh, and I think she's lucky lucky to have us. So so those are my thoughts uh, just about about discipline. Uh, we haven't found any need for raised voices. You know, the other thing, of course, is, is children at that age, I mean, they do get that brainstorm of, of impulse and they will uh, act out sometimes. We found it to very, very helpful to teach Isabella feeling words uh, very early on. And this was, and again, we started this about six or six months ago, maybe a little more, where we would identify with words how she was feeling. Isabella's feeling sad. Isabella's feeling happy. Uh, and we would put a little gesture together with it, right? So, so angry would be like, you know, and, and sad would be, hmm. And, uh, you know, happy would be dancing up and down. And, and uh, uh, so... So teaching feeling words to children very early on uh, is great. Uh, and it's, the studies, I believe, have shown that children who can express their emotions tend to act out on them less, particularly boys, that the impulse control is there because you can verbalize what you're feeling rather than having to demonstrate it through some sort of action, particularly when the child is angry. Uh, so yeah, when Isabella went through a phase of being frustrated because she was unable to do certain things like put on her shoes, we say, Isabella's angry, Isabella's upset, Isabella, you know. Uh, and and scared and, and and sad and happy, all of these things, so that she can tell us what she feels now, and that we have found has really cut back or reduced uh, impulsivity uh, on her part. And so I really strongly recommend you. You almost can't start too soon. And so you know, if you're watching a movie and the the the, the character is is angry, say ah, the character is angry, and so they learn to identify the feeling and learn to identify uh, in others. So I think that can be that can be really helpful, uh, and that uh, has reduced conflict a lot. Uh, in in our household, so these are just some thoughts and tips uh, that I wanted to uh, to put out there. And uh, of course, uh, I'm just going to switch mics now. But if if the parent has any questions, you know, from you know one amateur parent to another, uh, I'm certainly happy to help. Thank you, as always, for for watching and for listening. The question is, what about when the child is a teen or preteen and is not accustomed to expressing emotions? Well, uh, that's part I think of um, the the question that I sort of ask if Isabella has a, quote, deficiency is to say, is there something in my behavior that is not demonstrating this to, uh, to Isabella? So if you have a child who's a teen and the child does not express emotions, then I would imagine two things have occurred. One is that the parent has not focused on helping the child to express emotions and encouraging the child to express emotions. And the second is that child has not seen the parent express his or her own emotions. And I think that's uh, that's really uh, that's really important, uh, and to recognize that if you don't teach your child the capital of Bolivia, they're not going to magically know the capital of Bolivia, and that's the first thing to to recognize. And then it's just a matter of, yeah, I mean, I think I think by the time the child is a teen, you can say, I think it's important to talk openly about uh, the deficiency or any deficiency that may have occurred, and say, look, uh, I didn't really teach you how to express your emotions. I'm not very good at expressing my emotions, but I think it's something that we can really work on, and here's why. And then you can demonstrate that. Uh, I think always show before 
ask, right? So always show that you are gaining value out of them and out of talking about your emotions before, you know, sort of in a sense, insisting that the child do the same. So, and uh, I mean, there's a, you know, what age is it appropriate to say I'm changing my parenting because of X, Y, and Z? I think that there's no, I mean, hard and fast answer. Obviously, if the kid's 15, you can talk about that. And if the kid is two, that's not going to make much sense. So <laughs> somewhere between two and 15. But uh, I think it's very, very important to remember that a promise to change on the part of a parent to a child is is significant. And uh, if you don't follow through, that is uh, a big problem, particularly when, uh, if you're going to try and change again. So uh, don't uh, don't talk about it with your child until you're, really certain that you can follow through. And the best way to do that is, is I think, to change your behavior uh, and, and make sure that you can maintain that changed behavior before discussing it more openly with your child. Well, thank you. Can, can you hear me, Stefan? I sure can. How you doing, man? Good. So we, we finally made it. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of two thumbs when it comes to this uh, Skype chat room. This is my first time in this type of a forum. So oh, cool. uh, I'm excited, excited to be here. First off, uh, like I ended my question, I certainly appreciate your mind. Wow. And uh, the contribution that you're making is uh, outstanding. So thank you. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I don't know if you got a chance to hear the intro. Was that anywhere close to useful to you? Oh, yes, most certainly. And, and my wife is here with me. Her name's Francesca. She's from Italy. So she, she comes from a very, um, I guess, passionate, um, you know, I want to say aggressive type of um, upbringing. Um, you know, I, I was born in America, so you have the standard, uh, um, you know, discipline, you know, growing up. Uh, so I'm sort of getting an image of a, a fiery, finger-wagging Sophia Loren in yeah. a bathing suit with a ping-pong paddle. Uh, that could just be me, uh, and that may be entirely inappropriate to the discussion, but I, I just wanted to overshare with you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, go on. Well, thank you. So, um, you know, we've made some changes recently. We, we have a, a – he's 16 and a half months, just a joy bubble. Um, so, you know, and since I've been listening to you about the non – uh, aggression principle and starting to learn more about that and it really resonates so um, but we're you know for example um, let's say for example we're trying to change his diaper and he's just going to, into a tantrum he he wants a toy he wants to do something else but he, he's throwing a tantrum and there's just you know poop everywhere so um, you know before we would scream at him no, no. Do you want to go in, you know, void boxer, which means uh, do you want to go in the in, in, basically go in a play yard with a bunch of toys? But to him in that moment, it's a punishment. So, we're, you know, right. screaming at him, no, no, holding him down. And then finally, we, we'll just get him up and we'll put him in the boxer and, and leave him in there for, you know, two minutes and let him just scream it out. So that's what we've been doing up until you know, listening to you. And so recently we've changed our tone, and I know we still have some, you know, work, but uh, we've taken the, um, I guess it's more passive aggressive because we <laughs> No, that's, that's, that sounds very, very honest, and I appreciate that. Yeah, we've, taken, sorry, we've, we've at least taken the anger and the, and the yelling out of, out of it, and now we're speaking to him. You know, Dylan, for example, uh, you know, we have to ch change your diaper. It's going to get all over the place. 
you can play with the toy after we're done to just relax and, you know, we're a team. And he'll struggle and he'll scream and we'll go, okay, so we're going to have to put you in the boxer for a timeout. I'm sorry, don't... sorry. So you, you approach him in a, in a calmer way yeah. and uh, you've right. found that the tempo tantrums have not, uh, have not abated. Is that right? Well, you know, he's actually responding to us better. We've, we've def- definitely noticed a shift. Like when, when we speak to him more in a serious tone as, as opposed to a screaming tone, he does seem to react much better and, and he does listen uh, much better. Um, you know, but still we have those moments where he loves to be chased, chased around the house with a, a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> So, uh, you know, when, when we don't have time to do that, you know, he, he, he'll go into a, a minor tantrum and throw himself on the floor and, you know, and that type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, and then he'll hold his breath until he passes out. And um, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, so I guess this is where we're, we're you know, mixing our the way we were brought up to a new paradigm shift of the non, you know, aggression principle and how it would work with a child that really can't communicate with you um, what's going on with them. Um, so then we've just been basically giving him a timeout and letting him cry it out um, for a few minutes. And then we go back in and try to <laughs> rationalize it. So that's kind of where we're at. And, and, uh, and what you, your intro was very insightful so far. Right. Uh, and is it uh, is it fair to say that you were both raised with the um, I might hate even to say the word raised, but you were both uh, subjected to the uh, raised voice uh, and aggression form of parenting? Yes. Right. Well, first of all, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, because that makes it tougher uh, for sure. Because I mean, you're 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 trying to change the plane's wings while you're flying, right? And that's right. that's tough. But but so, I mean, you know, the whole spanking thing, and you know, well, you got yelled at, but you didn't get spanked. Yeah, I got so spanked. I, I, so. I, I, right. Uh, this is from Chase. I, I may add something. I I feel like um, despite uh, there was a lot of yelling and passion in my family, and I think that's what comes through to me. Uh, what's always clear somehow somewhere is the amount of love that's there. Like I never even one second question that my parents didn't love me. I know that they love me beyond their means. And I, I always feel like I communicate this to my son somehow, even when I yell. But when I yell, and I, by the way, I'm not doing that anymore because it's, it's a conscious choice and it's something I'm really actively working on. But even, even when, you know, not the best of me comes out, you know, I'm more upset with myself than I think is hurt. And maybe I'm not that effective. Um, as much as I could be. <laughs> so right. so I think that's where and I really, really are motivated because I think I'm more upset with myself because I, I feel like I'm not, I'm not being the best that I can be, you know, but there's always an extreme amount of love there and I think it comes through. And I, I mean, I would be the last person to say to people who are committing to nonviolent parenting that there's any lack of love for the child, right? So I hugely respect your your love for your child and your desire 
for a more peaceful and hopefully productive way of interacting. So I, I, I absolutely hear you. I completely accept that and, you know, get behind it and light a fuse under it, so to speak. So uh, I get I get that it's out of love and it's out of a desire for your child's happiness. But there are habits that we inherit and there are standards that we can choose to change if we want. Um, when did he start having these kinds of tantrums? Well, he started having uh, is what we call breath-holding spells, and those were <laughs> quite uh, trying for Michael and I because it was six months when he had his first one, and basically he literally faints. He literally right. faints before your eyes, he rolls his eyes, he turns blue, and then he comes back. Uh, sometimes out of a lot of pain, but sometimes when he really wants something and we're not giving it to him. So, so we went through the phase where, gosh, we didn't want to see a breath holding spells because it was scary for everybody. Uh, so we'll try to accommodate him a little more. But then we learned that that wasn't productive because he learned that that worked. So we now have to basically uh, not... Um, be affected by him losing consciousness. <laughs> oh yeah, that's terrifying for sure. I know, I know. So we basically, our doctor has guiding has been guiding us, his pediatrician, to lay him down in a safe area and just let him, you know, pass out, and he'll come back, and we will let him know we're there, and, and you know, but still we're not changing our mind, you know, you know we right, we right. Him, you know and it's okay but you know it's it's not appropriate right now it's not a good time or whatever like for example getting into the car seat or wanting to play with the computer when it's you know it's not a toy um so things like that so he has started at six months um we find that when he's well rested and well fed he's less likely to go there and so we we always make sure that we are uh, you know, providing and proactive, and proactive. But uh, Eastern is a very strong um, person. We're so proud of that. Yet, you know, we ne- really need to learn to to you know work with them. <laughs> yeah, and build towards those teenage years, right, where the balance of power shifts, and you really want to make sure you have the right stuff in place, right? Absolutely. Above all, with such a strong little human being. <laughs> I mean, it really is just by the by. I mean, it, it's amazing and a wonderful thing to see just how early they become people. I mean, you know, when they're born, they're obviously kind of blobs and all that. But but it's to me it really, really amazing just how quickly they have characteristics and personalities. And, you know, they're very different from sometimes from other kids or maybe even from their siblings. So uh, it just the, the personhood thing was it surprised me how quickly that came along. And you can certainly, I mean, from what you're saying, this showed up with your son, uh, his passion, his intensity, his, uh, his strong will showed up very early. But that's, that's very interesting. So now, of course, we have to find the parent to blame for giving him these traits. Which one? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who's going to point That would be me. That would be you. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? Please. Do you, uh, do you raise your voices with each other at all, with him in the house? Never. Good. Good. Okay. We, we are, we're very... I think yeah, we're we're very in love, passionate. We've been married almost ten years. Um, we got a yeah, we're we got a solid relationship. Fantastic. Um, uh, has he been exposed to um, uh, to other influence behavior may have been uh, visible? No, actually, not. You know, I'm a stay home mom, and I'm with him twenty four seven, and um, pretty. Uh, 
you know, not wanting to share him with anybody else. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Good for you. I, I know that, that that can be very tough. So I, again, okay. I you know, hats off and massive applause to you. Um, have you uh, – and I don't – I mean he sounds like a very intelligent fellow. And of course, he's the offspring of Free Domain Radio listeners. He's going to be a genius, I guarantee right. you. <laughs> That's yes, in we're writing. Working on out it. With your help. <laughs> uh, have you had uh, – w- w- where do you stand in terms of negotiation with, uh, with him? Uh, there's boy, a line, I would say. Negotiation. Well, uh, hmm. I think there's a line, you know, he's really good at getting what he wants, but I think if both uh, daddy and I feel like, you know, it's, it's really not appropriate is not getting it. So. Well, no, I understand that. But um, so let, let's take, for example, so he likes to play in the sink, right? And, and my daughter's the same way. I think she's, you know, half fish uh, as far as that yeah. goes. Uh, well, she went through this phase, by the by, just where she wanted to play in the sink, but she didn't like her fingers getting wrinkled. So there was a real tug as far as that went. But uh, yeah, she's, she's definitely half aquatic and she wants to play in the sink. And it doesn't seem like there's any time at which she is tired of playing in the sink. I mean, I think she'd just fall asleep in the water if she could. So... Uh, so I, you know, I really understand that. Uh, the way that I've approached it is, um, uh, she's too young to to read time or to really understand what what time is. But I do try and give her a sense, you know, like like five minutes, uh, and then uh, I, I find that it's it's sort of like a series of steps to to get her to. It's like you have to wean her off the sink, so to speak. It's a series of steps. So uh, I'll say, you know, Isabella, it's you know, it's almost lunchtime, and and usually I try to give her a reason why she has to come out of the sink. Uh, I'm hungry or, uh, you know, it's, it's lunchtime or, or, you know, if we do have to go somewhere, then we do have to go. Uh, so I'll sort of, and I'll say that to her, you know, I'm going to try and give you as much time as possible in the sink, but I will have to take you out because of X, Y, and Z. Now, when I first started doing that, I don't think she really got that, but it's a way of just starting it. You want to start it before they get it, because by the time they get it, they're usually, it would be better that they already had some history with it. So I sort of explained to her ahead of time. And then I'll sort of explain to her when we're getting close to the time where I have to take her out. And then, you know, I will start taking a few toys away, maybe a few more toys away. And, uh, uh, and then I'll start letting the water out and say, you know, we're almost done. We're almost done. Uh, to me, getting a child out of a, an enmeshed activity is like landing a plane. You know, there's, there's a big checklist. There's lots of things that you have to do and you have to touch down very gently. Uh, and because my daughter is – and I, I would guess your son is the same way. Uh, what really sets her off is, is wrenching change. Right. So when something is unexpected right. uh, that, that changes in the environment, then like she clamps and she gets really upset. Right. And, uh, like I, I had to do something uh, uh, on the computer this morning and Isabella wanted to, to play with me. And it's very rare that I'll have to do that. But my wife had to take her away and she was really upset because we tried to sort of negotiate with her to not, uh, you know, pull at me while I was on the computer. But she, she wanted to do something, but I had to do something. So that kind of stuff, like when there's wrenching change that she's not able to adjust to and and reorient towards, then she tends to really dig in and really get upset. And so uh, just rem- – rem- of course, you know, she has the attention span of, well, her father who's kidding who, right? But uh, uh, so so yeah. I find that it's it's gradual and quiet reminders and reorientation and that doesn't mean that she won't get at all upset when I take her out of the sink. But it does mean that I feel like I've done everything in my power to help her adjust to not being uh, in the sink and that – that to me has been very helpful. Sorry, that's a pretty long-winded way. Of- right. No, I, I completely uh, understand it because even this morning, he was uh, helping me out in the garage. You know, he was really, you know, watching me. Um, 
but he loves being out in the garage with me. And then all of a sudden when I was done, I just picked him up and we went in and he, you know, was just very upset about that instead of, so I see more communication and I take for granted he's 16 and a half months. So I'm just thinking that he doesn't get all this verbal mumbo jumbo, but he really gets a lot more than I give him credit for. So maybe if I just started, Hey, you know, daddy's almost uh, done with this and mommy's waiting for us inside and just kind of give him, giving him heads up. And like you said, taking the toys out, you know, and, and giving him the reasons as to why things have to change because otherwise things just feel arbitrary. You know, like you'd be pretty stressed if uh, some skyhook came out and yanked you away from whatever you were doing randomly. You'd be pretty tense about that, right? So giving him the reason, even if he's not fully understanding of it, you know, giving him the reason as to why things have to change can, can really help as well. So it doesn't feel so random or so imposed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a great suggestion. Thank you. Yeah, well, you've certainly given us, give us a lot to think about and, and thank you. And, and uh, sorry, the other thing that I would suggest as well, uh, I have found it to be very helpful to, uh, to whisper. Mm. <laughs> the, the child whisperer, that sounds right. To whisper, and what I mean by that is if I, if I have something that, uh, that Isabella may be upset about and you know, I can understand why perhaps sometimes, I'll, you know, I'll put my forehead against her and I'll just say it very softly. You know, we have to do this because of X, Y, and Z. And there's a kind of cozy intimacy to that and uh, it allows her, you know, rather than uh, getting upset and pulling her out and, and all that, which is an escalation, uh, I find that to go soft and to go intimate uh, can be really helpful. Then it's like, you know, we have a secret. You're almost down to the sink, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And yeah. that, uh, that kind of whispering has really helped. And it's also helped her to understand the distinction between loud and quiet, which we're really trying to get her to, to understand. So, right. um, so I find that that, you know, really going to a very quiet place uh, can can be very helpful in those kinds of transitions. It's it's tough to escalate if you're the only one doing it. I guess that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, I you know a little bit off topic, but still on topic. It's about children. You know, I'm, I'm really fascinated about about your your talks about um, public education, and you know, we're still a little ways away from that. But you know, we want to start thinking about how we want to educate. Dylan uh, here in America or in California. So I don't know if you if you're going to do any future shows or ideas about that homeschooling versus this type of education. Maybe there's online type. You know, we're right. You know, we really don't appreciate the public education program uh, for all of the reasons you pointed out. Uh, so yeah, love- I don't. I don't have any great answers for that as yet. Um, I've certainly. I had an interview with uh, Professor David Friedman about his experience uh, homeschooling and unschooling his kids, which seems to have been very successful. And uh, I would like to talk to more homeschoolers and unschoolers. I've just been you know, doing server transitions and all this boring technical stuff at the moment. But um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a topic that's going to increase in importance as uh, you know. I guess as we as a community move forward with our with our kids, and certainly for for myself and and my wife and Isabella. So yeah, I uh, I I find it a tough topic because I you know like. Um, there's only so much rat, radical thought that I can sort of handle in any given day and unschooling and all. It, it just feels outside my comfort zone, which just means I need to learn more about it and to continue to explore it. But uh, uh, so, yeah, that's that's sort of where I stand. And I'll definitely uh, uh, will be posting some stuff about that in the future. But uh, I don't have anything uh, just I don't have much just yet. You know, it'd be interesting. I, I'm 
I'm sure there's some sort of homeschooling curriculum on online somewhere that's just outstanding. I'm I'm sure. I just feel it. <laughs> Something. Yeah, and uh, the statistics seem to be pretty reliable that uh, homeschool children uh, outperform state schools children significantly, and. Uh, uh, that, of course, is counter to the propaganda that you get. I think I remember seeing, I think it was on the very first 30 Rock where they were making fun of homeschooled kids as, you know, buck-toothed hicks who thought that uh, men wrestled with dinosaurs or whatever, right? Uh, and that's, of course, entirely the opposite of what the statistics seem to show, that uh, homeschooled children. And, and I mean, isn't, isn't unschooling just a continuation of what our kids are doing now? I mean, uh, I don't have classes for Isabella. She is really excited about learning new things. She's really curious about new things. She wants to know the name for everything. She wants, you know, I see her struggle to assemble sentences to get her meaning across. And, it, you know, like, like watching somebody learn a video game or Rubik's Cube or whatever. And so she is intensely driven to learn, to explore, to grow, to 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 expand her horizons. And so, you know, the argument would be, well, uh, why would that change? Why would, you know, wouldn't that just be the case going forward? Uh, and uh, that is something that I'm really, really interested uh, in, in exploring. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's a big question and I don't have a good answer for it yet. And of course, the answers may be as individual as, as parents or children's uh, circumstances. I'm certainly not a fan of state, state education, but uh, there are certainly people who have that as a necessity in their lives. And I'm sure there are things that can be done to uh, help uh, uh, reinforce the positives and undo some of the negatives. But uh, yeah, I don't have a, uh, a big answer for you yet, but uh, uh, I'll certainly uh, continue looking at the question. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, how, how old is Isabella now? Uh, she is 26 months, almost okay. 27 months. Well, I, I certainly feel fortunate to know that, uh, your daughter's a little older than Dylan, so I can kind of follow your research. <laughs> oh, and she is she is very strong-willed, and she is very passionate, and she she always has been uh, since day day two. Day one, she slept. Day two, she stopped. <laughs> She's like, I'm done with that. Oh. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I can tell you that it it works. Uh, at least there's there's empirical evidence that it works at least in one family. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think I think it's I think it's pretty universal and. Um, so you know, congratulations on on the choices that you're making. I think that your your son is uh, immensely lucky to have you both as parents, and I just really, really wanted to applaud you for what it is that you're doing. It's uh, I mean, it's a it's a moving and beautiful thing. I have to sort of remind myself not to get too choked up during live shows because <laughs> because I'm British and that's just not allowed. But uh, it is it is just so moving for me to hear these kinds of stories and to to realize uh, what a different childhood your son's going to have because of uh, what philosophy brings to the world. So thank you so much for sharing sharing that with us. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Keep us posted if you can. And uh, I think we can move on to the next caller. Fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I think we had some other people waiting up, James. Yeah, for sure. Um, we have several newbies on the call today. Uh, you know, So if you haven't spoken before, feel free to uh, speak up now. Hello, can you hear me? I can. You've got a. Oh, try that again. Hi. Yeah, a little, little bit of a hiss, but nothing too bad. Uh, what's on your mind, my friend? 
Well, to continue with the education um, topic, uh, I was listening to, I think last week, you were talking about, you mentioned Gatto, and um, I was going to ask if you knew much about classical education. Well, tell me what you mean by classical, I think, covers a variety of topics. Sorry, classical education as far as um, the trivium method, as far as uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and uh, it's one that's been picked up by Christian private schools recently and uh, adopted for the Christian purpose, but um, there is a new meme coming out, and I listened to another podcast that has actually interviewed Gatto. You were asking if he's ever been interviewed through a podcast or whatever, and I've heard him interviewed, um, but... As far as uh, classical education in as um, coming out of the mystery schools and antiquity, um, but grammar, logic, and rhetoric, as far as I see it happening in your philosophy day-to-day with your child, but um, it's kind of like it comes out innately, but there is a uh, formal uh, perspective on classical education as far as like you, you, know, you identify something through the grammar and then you... Um, disassemble it through the logic and then analyze it through the rhetoric and such. But I, I didn't know if you... <clears throat> Sorry, hello? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I'm sort of aware of it uh, in, in that, uh, I mean, it's, I think it comes out of, a, there was a 19th century or even 18th century British tradition of uh, grammar and logic. And I think that's what Shakespeare went through even earlier. And of course, this was focused on way back in, in Plato's. Uh, quote university so but i'm not i'm not too familiar with with the contents but it's certainly interesting and i appreciate you bringing it to people's attention so they can google it and and find if there's use in it i mean obviously i think that uh, uh teaching logic critical thinking skills writing reading i mean i think those are all essential to a well-rounded well-educated well-lived life so if these approaches are already out there yeah why not uh, avoid reinventing the wheel and, and look it up for sure thank you um also i had a question which book were you mentioning as far as gatos that you were reading um because you mentioned that he had written about others who had success dropping out of school and such i think it was weapons of mass instruction i'm not sure yes yeah i think that's the one it's, yeah I it's read downstairs that one. but i think i think that's the one it wasn't the underground history of american education no. i haven't read that one yet but uh yeah that one's a textbook style <laughs> um yeah was it at the end where he mentioned a uh, solution no, through the state? No, uh, it's pretty early on. It's in the first – I think it's in the first quarter or first third of the book. Uh, so right. it's uh, – and I mean I think he's a, he's a good writer. I mean I, I envy people's writing skills. Uh, I think that I'm just an okay writer, but I think he's a really good writer. <laughs> and so uh, he's, uh, he's, he's well worth reading. I mean there's stuff that I disagree with him, but you know, so what? I mean <laughs> that's I think true. Yeah. I disagree with myself sometimes from day to day. But um, yeah, he's definitely worth, uh, worth reading. And uh, uh, he, is a, he is a fierce guardian of human potential and what can be achieved outside of a rigid structure. Yeah. His, uh, he, I mean, there's some YouTube videos on how he changed his uh, curriculum for his middle school students in New York. And he would have them go out into the city and practically uh, assume on-the-job training or under someone else's um, their watch at, at, on the job. I don't know. To get personal uh, – sorry, real-life experience – um, other than the school experience and textbooks and tests and stuff like that. But he had to go outside of the, the realms of the school and what they would really allow and get approval by the parents to send their kids out into the city to get real-life experience. Right, my, last, right. my last question, sorry. Um, I have. It, it's funny that this Gatto book is one of the few that I've actually read. I've always had an issue growing up with reading. 
And uh, my mother barely read. She told me that she'd have to start reading to get me to read when I was at the age to start reading in elementary school. Mm. And um, I, you know, I heard you give words of advice as far as procrastination and um, limiting uh, our enthusiasm as children. But uh, I mean, it's, it's tough. I am a slow reader. I feel like uh, you know, I sit there and read every word, word for word, and um, I'm not sure what to do about it. But as far as I guess giving myself more time just to sit down and read, I've more recently just been doing podcasts and audiobooks, and I'm not sure what to do for myself because I need to go back to school and I need to read more. Right. Well, uh, I mean, I don't. I'm certainly no expert on on how to improve reading skills, but uh, uh, I I have switched more to audio. I certainly listen to more than I read now. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you have an an iPod uh, Touch or an iPhone, there are I mean, there's a really great application called Speak It, which allows you to copy and paste web pages or PDF files or whatever, and then it will read it to you in a pretty realistic sounding human voice. And mm-hmm. so uh, if I have stuff that I need to check on the web, uh, I will usually, you know, just put it into that. Or there's a, a program called Text Aloud, which is the best one that I've found for a PC. I don't know if they have it for a Mac, which converts text to audio for you. Mm-hmm. And that has also been helpful. I mean, that doesn't solve your, you know, the, the yeah. sort of reading problems, but uh, it, as far as uh, the absorption of information, it's not a great way to study because, of course, you kind of highlight and things like that. Right. I find problems when I'm trying to speak about stuff that I've heard in a podcast recently, and it's you, you don't have the substantial information in your head because you didn't read it; you only heard it. And right. it's hard for me to talk about, you know what I mean? Like bring up specific details where I can mention specific things out of a book because I remember reading them, the images are in my head of the words and everything else like that. But it's, I find it tougher to bring up the topics that I've heard about in podcasts with people and reiterate what I heard because I only heard it. I didn't read it for myself. <laughs> it's a, a FDR 500 was a pretty cheesy song that I wrote about the show. And uh, one of the lines is, um, uh, all podcasts of note are impossible to quote. Search in vain for what you think he might have said. You'll never catch the big chatty forehead. <laughs> so yeah, that is the problem, of course, with with digital, uh, particularly audio, is it's like, oh yeah, there was this good idea, but I have to paraphrase and I can't find it. Yeah. The other thing that you might, it just popped into my head, is that I think that the new Kindle will read to you while highlighting the text hmm. uh, on the screen. And so you might want to check that out in terms of just getting used to a particular pace or a particular way of processing it. But again, I mean, I'm certainly no expert on how to improve that, but that might be something that might be helpful. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome, and uh, uh, I hope that you you enjoy school. Yeah, this is also my first time calling in, being a part of the show and everything. I wish we had a cool noise for you, uh, (laughs) other than bad singing. I wish, yeah, bing, bing, bing. Actually, I just bought my daughter a little, she, she, uh, she has a little sound effects machine. That uh, she just loves, like it does, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, is it similar and, uh, to those books where they have sound buttons on the side and yeah, it's like that. Except this is just sort of yeah. self-contained, yeah. and uh, so yeah, we can we can while away at least half an hour with her <laughs> pushing buttons and me acting out cartoon things. So anyway, just so, so. Uh, uh, perfect. Thank you. So if I had it, I would play one for you, but it's <laughs> upstairs. All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and. We can go to the next caller. Hey, Seth. Hello. Hey, can you hear me all right? I sure can. All right. Um, I'm the guy with the dream that I I wanted to talk about. Sure. Do I just post it in the chat or? 
Sure, why don't you post it in the chat and I'll, I'll give it a read just because your voice is a little uh, hard to hear. It's kind of long, so just wanted to let you know. All right. Okay. There we go. All right. That is long. Um, I may... Okay, let me just see here, because I mean th this could this could take at least an hour. Right, right. So uh, maybe you can email that to me. Maybe we'll do this offline if that. Oh, we do it as a as a separate show. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that's just because to, to ask. I mean, some people like the uh, uh, some people really like the dream analysis, and some people, uh, interestingly enough, it actually puts them to sleep where they get to dream. But. Um, uh, let, yeah, send that to me in an email, and maybe we could talk about it offline for the people who are more interested in that. But that's yeah, that's a very big. Uh, yeah, that's a very it's really big long. I, I read it wrong. I woke up. All right. No problem. Right, yeah, sorry about that, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll okay. do that offline. All right, I appreciate it. <laughs> it looks like the novel I'm reading on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it's good that you remember all those details. It's usually very helpful. But uh, yeah, that that definitely is a uh, a deep dive. Uh, somebody's asked if we can talk about intellectual property today. I just got into a debate about piracy. Arr! And the person just kept saying over and over that I don't understand how it's immoral to steal intellectual property. Uh, somebody's asked, what are the prospects for anarchy in China, considering the economic freedoms granted and the investment in precious metals? I do not believe that the prospects for anarchy in China are high. Uh, I believe that... Um, Anarchy, i.e. a universal commitment to the non-aggression principle, is going to come out of the kind of parenting choices that the delightful couple that we talked about at the beginning of the show are making. And uh, I don't think that there's any other way or any other shortcut. And I'm certainly no expert on parenting in China, but what I have heard from friends who've been there is uh, – and what I saw at least to some degree when I was in China for business, uh, I guess a little over a decade ago – is that uh, parenting there has a ways to go. And until the parenting improves, society won't uh, go towards uh, more, more freedom. Uh, so, yeah, as far as uh, intellectual property goes, uh, I'll just sort of mention briefly what my perspectives are on the topic. There are some state functions that seem to me will be likely replicated, at least to some degree, in a truly free society. And one of those functions would be, for instance, uh, uh, sorry, just one sec, let me finish this point, and then we'll, we'll take the caller. And so, yeah, just hang on the line, I'll be done in a sec. Uh, so, somebody steals your car, you want your car back. Uh, so, I think those services will be provided in a, in a free society. And the question of whether copying a song or getting a song for free over the internet, the question of whether that is the initiation of force or not, or is it, the, is it, is it actually stealing? I can see, you know, there's usually at least 12 sides to these kinds of arguments, and I can certainly see a couple of them. The first is that if I take somebody's music, uh, I'm not stealing something from them because 
uh, a car can't be replicated, at least until Patrick Stewart uh, gives us uh, all nice tea. And so a car can't be replicated. So if I take somebody's car, they are ipso facto denied the, the, the opportunity to use that car because I have it and there's only one of them. And if I copy somebody's music, they still have the music. And so I haven't actually taken anything from them. That's sort of one way of looking at it. But that sort of begs the question because if it is a dollar for the song and I copy the song, then I have taken something from them, which is the dollar that they would have had if I had paid for it. And I think that's something that is, uh, that is sort of important. So the question is, does somebody who creates something have the right to charge for other people reproducing it? Well, I, I believe that they do. Uh, I don't believe it should be enforced by a state. I think it should be enforced through uh, voluntary contracts and personal contracts. And I think that there would be quite a range of those. There would be people like myself who give away uh, just about everything for free and uh, prefer donations. There may be other people who try to sell uh, stuff and may then have recourse to people who are taking it without paying. There are ways of, uh, uh, of like in, in a book, saying that the contract, which I think is sort of currently in the book, that you buy the book, but you don't buy the right to, uh, to copy, photocopy it, and redistribute it uh, at will. And those kinds, you know, if you, if you buy something with a limitation on its use, that to me is fine. Uh, you, you rent a car, you don't have the right to sell it on eBay, right, because you're just renting it. And so I think that those kinds of contracts will be there in a free society. I think in a free society, more and more people would go to free with donations uh, because there would just be so much more wealth. And of course, these things are quite easy to set up. Uh, now, if you want subscriptions or donations or whatever, for instance, you can go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate and, uh, and see for yourselves. But um, so as far as intellectual property goes, the problem with the state is the state is kind of binary. It's a kind of binary. That's not a very binary statement. But it's kind of binary. So it's like, okay, well, intellectual property, it is stealing, and therefore we're going to use courts and police and jails and fines and all that kind of crap. Or other people say, well, it's not stealing, and therefore you know, we shouldn't have these things. But a free society doesn't say, is it black or is it white? I mean, in very few things it will, like assault or murder or rape or whatever. But I think a free society works much more fundamentally on negotiation. And a free society, of course, it can really only work if the majority of people have some sort of rationality, some sort of benevolence, some sort of positivity, and therefore you can rely, uh, if you're an artist, on that to support you for the work that you do. So if I get into intellectual arguments um, about, uh, about intellectual property, the first thing I say is that I don't agree with the state as a solution as a whole. And so I think that I'm very much against the initiation of the use of force. I'm very much against theft. If somebody wants to release their material saying anybody who consumes this has to pay me for it, and that's very clear and very evident, then you should not consume it unless you want to pay for it. And other people, I think that's personally, it's going to be pretty unenforceable and it's going to be, you're going to be chasing ghosts all over the planet if you want to do that. So I think it's going to be pretty voluntary and it's going to be pretty donation based. And I think that's going to be great for, uh, for a lot of people. And so that's, that's the approach that I take. Because if we don't have a state, then we can look at negotiated, optional, multi-layered, multi-dimensional solutions. If we have a state, it tends to be sort of black and white, either or. 
And if you get away with the status paradigm, then you can look at much more fluid, much more evolutionary or evolving, voluntary, overlapping, n-dimensional solutions to things, which we can't that we can't really imagine, uh, other than to say that I don't think that property rights, even in intellectual property, should be enforced through violations of property, right? Because a state relies on on taxation to fund itself, and taxation is the initiation of force and a violation of property rights. And therefore, a statist solution is fundamentally anti-property rights. And so I don't think you can use rationally use a state to protect property because you have to violate property in order to have a state. So that's my basic argument. However else it gets solved, I mean... Who knows? Who knows? But um, I think we sort of go, got to go back to the beginning of, of how all this stuff starts. All right. Sorry about that. That was a little longer than I thought, but I'm all ears, my brother. Hello? Hello. Hi, uh, Stefan. Um, my name is David Monson. Uh, I had a, a few questions. Um, um, I'm going um, to college at the moment, and I wanted to know um, what what would be the the best um, video, you know, to show, you know, like a, a class, you know, um, of you know, like other other people, you know, like what would be, I mean, because because uh, we're gonna be debate, we're gonna be uh, talking about the topic of anarchy, you know, and uh, I've been um, listening to your podcast and seeing your videos for a while now, and. Uh, you know, I, I would like to just, you know, spread the word out, you know, and, and uh, you know, what what, would, what do you think would be the first, you know, the, the, the very most essential video that you think? Because, you know, I can't make a choice, you know, I, I, there's so many videos, you know, or what what would be the first thing to, to be, you know, to get out there, you know, to, 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 to show them? That's a, that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I have one called The Proof of Anarchy. It's not visually very stimulating, but I think that one is uh, is uh, is pretty good. I mean, the, the ones that are popular, uh, the money that is sold abroad is you, uh, is pretty popular. Uh, that's a good way of just explaining to people how the you know, political class views, views taxpayers. Uh, the story of your uh, enslavement is, uh, I think, my most popular video. Uh, and that has something to do with a, a sort of voluntary or free a free society. So you might want to just scroll through the ones that are the most popular, uh, because I, I would assume that they have, you know, the widest appeal and see if there are those, uh, if there are any of those that you think might, might work. Oh, yeah, the sunset of the state is uh, also something that uh, is, is quite popular, and I think is, uh, is very interesting, uh, and a good way, I think, of getting, I mean, in a video, you're only really going to be able to get people to uh, start asking possibly some questions, not really get any particular arguments or explanations across in any concentrated way. So uh, those would be the ones that I would uh, suggest, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that a really big problem that would come um, come across, though, um, is, I mean, is there a video that would explain, you know, how it doesn't really matter what the the practical solution is it's just that we have to get rid you know the system we have now yeah i mean i did a speech at drexel university uh, about that okay and um let me just see if i can dig up the uh the name of it it's called freedom is humility uh it was posted in october of last year uh stefan molyneux speaking at drexel university uh and that's uh it's got my attempt at a little comedy, uh, which again might okay. 
uh, <laughs> might uh, might be of value, or they might just go like that dude, you know, as a stand-up comedian, he makes a reasonable philosopher. But that's about it. But uh, you might you might want to check that check that out. Okay, and also um, if I'm going to meet the um, I guess uh, arguing for um, anarchy. Um, is, and it, this this could be in either in you know video or you know the you know uh, PDF you know um, uh, what would be a, um, a good video or I mean uh, thing to show to them um, about ethics because I think that well I mean we would uh, wouldn't you agree that it's the most important thing that to, you know to find out first it's what is evil you know and and because if if we're saying that the you know the the, the government is evil, then, you know, they're going to ask, you know, well, they're going to say, you know, they're, they're going to contradict that by saying it's not, you know, and, um, but no, yeah, that's, I, mean, I think that's I, an I excellent think... point. Uh, there are, I mean, if you do a search on my channel for, which is youtube.com forward slash free domain radio, I do have a couple of presentations on ethics. Uh, the students for Liberty recently invited me to do a webinar on, on ethics, uh, which was posted, I think just a week or two ago. And although the sound quality on that is not great, but if you do a search in ethics, uh, I've got some stuff from the Intro to Philosophy, and I've got a couple of PowerPointy type presentations on universally preferable behavior, which is my approach to uh, to ethics. And you might want to have a browse through those and see uh, see if those work. But I think you're right. Yeah, you need to have a conversation about good and evil before you talk about solutions. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, that's about it. Uh, thank you very much um, for all you, you're doing, you know, uh, and uh, looking forward to hearing from you uh, soon. Thanks so much, and uh, best of luck with it. And I also just wanted to, just as you head off, I mean, remind you that stuff like, uh, saying stuff like the government is evil, I think is a... Um, uh, is a challenge because the government as an entity doesn't exist. And, uh, mm. uh, right, and, and so I, I would just say that... Um, uh, that and using the word evil without definition puts a lot of thoughts into people's heads that may not have much to do with philosophy because philosophy hasn't owned the word evil in I don't know how long if it ever even really did and so I would suggest uh, just saying something like uh, you know there are logical contradictions in the theories of statism or, or stuff like that and I think that's where people will get the most value or the most questions out of it okay well thank you very much again uh it, there are logical contradictions in the idea of, of statism. Yeah, something something like that, and, and sort of understand what they are, and that way you can get into a debate with people about reason. If you start off with good and evil, given where most people are coming from in terms of good and evil, it can be it can be really tricky to get to a productive place. So that would be that would be my suggestion. I mean, it's okay if you're talking with libertarians because they sort of think they sort of get the initiation of the non-aggression principle and so on. But that would, if you're if you're speaking with people who aren't familiar with that, uh, I would start off with the logic and the evidence rather than uh, the moral stuff. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much again, and uh, um, looking forward to uh, looking forward to the future. Um, I, I have, I, I mean, I, I have, you know, thank you very much. I mean, for for all you're doing, really. Uh, I think that uh, you know, you know, you you really you know helped me uh, you know become a better person. You, I mean, you know, I feel you know like freer you know because of, because of this you know. And I, I just have you to thank you know, and I know that 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 you you have like you know the you know the I mean 
Yeah, I mean, how, how did you feel when, I also wanted to ask you, how did you feel when you first, um, you know, started thinking about these ideas of freedom and, you know, um, um, you know, living without the state? Well, I felt exhilarated and I felt frightened and I felt excited and I felt anxious. I mean, so it was a, it's a roller coaster. And I mean, I'm not saying that roller coaster ever particularly ends, but um, uh, it is, uh, uh, it, it's there. Uh, and um, so it's, uh, it has its highs and it has its lows. Uh, it is exciting and it is challenging. And every time I surmount new, exci- like surmount new challenges, more challenges uh, come up. So I don't regret for a moment the thoughts, the philosophy, the approach. There are times when it can be, uh, it can be challenging for sure, but um, it is, uh, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. All right. Thank you very much again. Peter. Thanks, man. And congratulations. Uh, it sounds like your brain is in full blaze. So good for you. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. We still have some time. Hey. Hey, uh, I actually have a few questions pretty much regarding uh, libertarianism. I remember the first caller uh, near the end of his discussion, he was talking about how he really doesn't want to put his kid in the public schooling system. I go to high school at a public school. I actually love my public school, you know. I'm in all AP classes. I love my teachers. I love the people there. And I'm sorry really... to interrupt. Could I sorry to interrupt? Uh, just if you if you keep shifting around, we keep getting these noise from your headset. If you could just try and uh, keep your head sort of steady while you're talking, because I'm getting a lot of background noise. Okay, is that better? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Um, what was it? I was. Oh yeah, right. The public schooling system. Um, I really wasn't aware of the statistics about what kids are actually learning until I recently started uh, listening to you. And it seems that it would work better if we had a a voucher system that I know a lot of, I know you're one to advocate no state, but I mean, would you also advocate for a voucher system with public schooling? Do you think that would remove the problems mostly? Uh, Just just for people who maybe new or, or just want to give you right so this is from chris hedges book empire of illusion the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle he says uh, he writes on on page 44 functional illiteracy in north america is epidemic there are seven million illiterate americans another 27 million are unable to read well enough to complete a job application and 30 million can't read a simple sentence there are some 50 million who read at a fourth or fifth grade level Nearly a third of the nation's population is illiterate or barely literate, a figure that is growing by more than 2 million a year. A third of high school graduates never read another book for the rest of their lives, and neither do 42% of college graduates. In 2007, 80% of the families in the United States did not buy or read a book, and it's not much better beyond our borders. Canada has an illiterate and semi-literate population estimated at 42% of the whole, a proportion that mirrors that of the United States. Um, so a voucher system is, uh, is, is a tough question because at the moment 
you, I mean, there, there really aren't any private schools because they're still so heavily regulated by the state. The voucher system is where, if I understand your definition of it, and let me know if I don't. A voucher system is where you say to parents, here's $10,000 or $8,000 or $6,000. You can spend it on any school that you want. Yeah, that's right. And you don't have to be bound by the geography and, uh, you know, you have to send your kid to the closest school. And so this will engender competition among among schools. That's the basic idea, right? Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, the challenge that I see with that is that what is the definition of a school, right? So let's say there's this voucher system. Well, the moment you start getting a voucher system, you are going to get people springing up. Uh, saying that they offer a school and taking voucher money, and then the government says, well, that's not a real school, right? Hmm. So then what they have to do is they have to start defining what a real school is, and that's going to end up with huge amounts of regulations and controls and unionization and further on, until uh, it would seem that uh, even the private schools may end up fairly indistinguishable from the public schools. So uh, that's the way that I see that kind of voucher system occurring. What I think would probably be better, uh, I'm not holding my breath for it, but instead of it being sort of a voucher system, uh, just uh, stop, uh, stop taking property taxes from people to pay for education and let them pay for education themselves. That to me would be the way to do it because certainly don't need to spend $10,000 a year to educate a child. Uh, there have been times in history where education is much, much cheaper and uh, many alternatives to sitting in a classroom for 15,000 hours or whatever it is uh, are there. So uh, I think that if the government puts in vouchers, it's going to have to de define down to the last detail what a school is, what a curriculum is, what success is, what failure is. And all it will do is extend the power of the state even further than where it is in the educational system as it stands. That would be my very strong uh, guess as to what would happen through a voucher system. All right. I didn't really uh, think of that at all, that they would have to you know, put definitions out there and regulate that. I mean, the only problem I foresaw was you know, a fluctuation of the population for every school. Uh, that would be a problem. Um, I'm sorry, were you about to say something? No, no, go ahead. Uh, well, I actually was about to move on to my other question. Um, so you advocate no state at all, no government, just the people doing their own thing, allowing the free market to take place and everything, right? Well, I, I, just to be annoyingly precise, uh, I try not to advocate anything um, because that's just, you know, I like ice cream is not a philosophy, right? So I don't sort of advocate <laughs> no state. Uh, that's sort of saying like, to a biologist, so you advocate evolution. It's like, no, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I am against the initiation of the use of force because it is immoral, illogical, and impractical. And so uh, I am for uh, a virtuous society. I am for a society that is um, against the initiation of force where uh, the universalization of basic personal morality and don't hit, don't steal, don't whatever, right? All of that sort of stuff. Don't kill, don't... You know. So I am against the initiation of force. And that has a number of consequences in a variety of fields, right? So in the field of parenting, uh, it means uh, don't, don't hit your kids. Uh, in, in the field of, um, uh, of science, it means uh, you have customers not grant money taken from people by force. 
in the realm of the state as a whole, uh, in the realm of contract enforcement, it means that uh, people need to negotiate contracts and their penalties ahead of time. In the realm of punishment, uh, it, it falls in line with what I was talking about with the parents earlier, that you want the withdrawal of a positive as much as possible and as little as possible the infliction of a negative. Because right now, if people disobey the law, which I never suggest or advocate, but if people dis- disobey the law, then they face you know fines and prison and all this sort of stuff. And I think that there are many better, more functional, more productive ways to enforce social rules. So ostracism or the withdrawal of a positive, the withdrawal of people wanting to deal with you in a civil society is a much more powerful and sustainable and positive way to deal with uh, with transgressions. I'm very much against uh, – I'm very much for prevention rather than cure, which means that uh, you know since the vast majority of criminals come from – abused uh, childhoods, then that sort of falls well in line with uh, my very strong uh, and public stand against child abuse, because we're not going to be able to have a free society if we have lots of traumatized and dangerous uh, people around who can't reason, who have impulse control problems, who initiate the use of force, and who have significant problems with empathy. So, uh, sorry to say, so it's not like I advocate no state. I think that's, uh, and I have no problem with you saying that. I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable way to put it, uh, you know, sort of coming into the conversation fairly fresh. But um, uh, I accept the universality of the non-aggression principles, and that has a variety of consequences in a variety of fields. And yeah, in, in the realm of politics, I am entirely for social organization. I am entirely for you know, bad people being punished and good people being rewarded, so to speak. I'm entirely for all of that stuff. Uh, and because I'm against the initiation of force, we have to look at options for social organization that don't, that aren't based on the initiation of the use of force like the state. Okay. So, you, you I mean, you would still say that there, it would be better if there was still some sort of, uh, form of, I guess, non-aggressional government, I guess you could say. Not really. Well, but non-aggressional government is, um, is a contradiction in terms because the government, as Barack Obama recently stated, the government enjoys a monopoly on the initiation of force in a geographical area. He knows what, what the state is, right? So uh, you can't have a non-violent state because if it is non-violent – then it is in the free market. It allows for competition. It doesn't initiate the use of force, and therefore, it's not, uh, it's not a state. So, well, then, how would currency work exactly? I mean, if there was no state, how would would people just trade commodities? I mean, because doesn't currency come from government? Well, uh, certainly, it is almost universally the case at the moment that currency is a government enforced monopoly for sure. But currency is uh, a universal it, – it, it's something called um, – it emerges spontaneously from human interactions just because commod- like trading commodities is, is so ridiculously inefficient, right? So if you have a bushel of oranges and I have a spade and we want to trade with each other – we have to go – we either have a coincidence of once, which is very rare, or we have to go and find all these people who we can trade through to get what we want, like that guy who turned a paperclip into a house, I guess, through uh, Craigslist or whatever. And so uh, 
currency just emerges from people trading because you need a medium of exchange that makes your trades that much easier. Sometimes it's gold, sometimes it's seashells or salt or whatever. I mean, and in the future, who knows what it would be? It could be any number of things. It could be electronic, it could be physical, it could be virtual, it could be whatever, right? But there would be a lot of people competing to provide the best currency for people. And there would be a lot of people making sure that currency had a stable value, was was predictable, and was was backed by some real value and wasn't um, you know, they wouldn't print too much and drive up inflation. So currency would be provided as something that people really need outside of, of a state. And of course, I would argue very strongly that when you look at the US dollar since the Federal Reserve was created in the early 20th century, the US dollar has lost over 97% of its value. So government uh, does not provide currency in a stable kind of way. I mean, just look at what's going on in the US at the moment in terms of what's the mess that uh, the currency is in or, or over at the euro, the mess their currency is in. So yeah, governments at the moment provide currency, but uh, there's, they certainly didn't originally and there's no reason why they, they would have to and there's many better solutions that could come out of a voluntary uh, free market way to approach currency. So I mean you're saying that there could possibly even eventually be a firm established simply for the purpose of creating a currency. Well, there would be many firms, I would assume, right? And and it, but it, it fundamentally, you know, this may it may sound odd, but the the truth is that it fundamentally doesn't matter how currency is dealt with in a free society. It do, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters, is that at the moment, currency is enforced through violence, right? So, the government can print all the money that it wants. The government can run up crazy debts. Uh, for the unborn. And if you'd say, look, I don't like this. I don't like this currency. Uh, I find it predatory. I find it destructive. I find it wildly unpredictable. And I don't know how much money the Fed is printing at the moment. And I don't like this quantitative easing. And I don't like trillions of dollars to bankers uh, at the expense of future generations. I don't like all this foreign debt. I'm done with this currency. I'm going to start me bucks or something like that. Well, then they're going to come after you, right? And so the fact is that the currency, it doesn't matter what happens in the absence of violence. What matters is that violence is used to create and sustain a monopoly on currency at the moment. So I I mean, there's some answers if you want to go digging around for them. And I talk about them, uh, some of them in my book, uh, free book. Uh, at freedomainradio.com forward slash free called Practical Anarchy. I think I got a chapter on currency in there. But, and, and those are interesting things to explore, but it's not, you know, it's like the physics of Dungeons and Dragons. It can be interesting to explore theoretically how does a fireball spell actually work, but it doesn't have any particular reality. The only thing that matters is that you should not use violence you should not initiate violence in society, and that's how currency at the moment is created and maintained and used, unfortunately, to prey upon often the most vulnerable members of society. Yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely right about that, that we do have that force and monopoly over that. I mean, that's what's creating all this inflation and the bond bubble uh, right. that we're in because we're artificially keeping interest rates low and that all happened because, I mean, the whole thing is definitely a broken system in a sense. And I just, I don't really see a definite remedy for it, but I mean, it seems like that could definitely work 
if there was just the absence of state and that could establish itself because of the free market. Yeah, I could see how that would work. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I've explained it before, uh, I would just touch on it briefly here, is that saying, how does agriculture work if we get rid of slavery, right? So let's say in the 17th century in the South or whatever, and you say, uh, you know, slavery is immoral, right? Owning human beings like livestock is immoral. And people say, well, you know, explain to me how agriculture would work in the absence of owning slaves. It's like, but that's not the point. The point is it's just wrong to have slaves. Now, maybe you'd guess that there would be massive, you know, <laughs> gasoline-powered combine harvesters and factory farms and genetically modified crops and, and, you know, just huge explosions in agricultural productivity in the absence of owning slaves. But that's all just theoretical. And people can argue about theor theoretical stuff forever, right? So you, you point out any currency system and that, that's private and somebody would say, well, what about this? Well, well, somebody could exploit about this way or what if it was hacked or what if somebody counterfeited or whatever? And then you get involved at that level of debate. But, you know, I just strongly suggest just return to the, the basic principle, which is that the initiation of forces is wrong. It's wrong to say that only certain people, uh, often depicted as, you know, in top hats with monocles and a gold watch on their distended capitalist banker pig belly, <laughs> uh, that only some people have the right to create and print currency, and that's virtuous for them. But if anyone else tries it, they go to jail. Uh, that is a moral contradiction. And it is in the same way that it's a moral contradiction to say that some human beings are property owners and some human beings are property. Well, they're all human beings. So having these contradictory categories is illogical and immoral. And so I just, you know, re return to that. You know, it's, it's wrong for people to initiate the use of force in, 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 in every sphere. And so it doesn't matter how currency works in a free society. What matters is that it's immoral to have a violent monopoly on the provision of a, I mean, any good and service, but particularly one as essential and elusive as currency. Okay. Um, last question, I promise. Um, <laughs> no, great uh, questions. So great questions. I hope that, uh, that you appreciate that. Well, um, so you're talking about the negotiation over contracts when you don't have force trying to drive that. Uh, but a contract, that's a legal document. I mean, wouldn't a contract be considered void without law, without some kind of uh, law system to uphold that? I mean, how would that work? Well, if you want to see how that would work, uh, just look at any political election in the world, right? I mean, I think it was Joe Biden who said, um, you know, somebody gives you, uh, I don't know, $50,000 or $100,000 to your campaign. They don't, they don't do this with any strings attached. There's no paperwork that says, if you, you know, give me this. Then, but, but you see them anyway. They come for a they come to your office, you let them in, and you sit down, you get them a coffee, and you have a nice cozy chat. I'm completely paraphrasing, but it was something like that. Uh, when people give money to political parties, they don't do so with a contract. So when unions give money, like government unions or, or public un sector unions, when they give money to the, the, the Democrats, they don't do so with an explicit contract which says, okay, well, now you're going to raise our benefits and you're going to protect our jobs. And it just, it's what happens. There's a quid pro quo. So the government itself, in terms of the campaign donations that are required to get into office and the payoffs that are made from office, runs entirely without contracts and without even 
like the contracts aren't even written down and they're certainly not at all enforceable. If I give $50,000 to Joe Biden's whatever bid for and he doesn't see me, I'm out $50,000. It's just that that never happens. So the state itself runs on a stateless system. And, and in fact, it runs on a stateless system that is much more vague, infinitely more vague and infinitely less enforceable than a truly free society system would be. So that's just an example of, of how even if you can't speak a contract, even if you can't write it down, even if it's never mentioned, the entire example of a democratic government system is an example of how even if you strip away every conceivable way that a contract can be known about and published and enforced, it still works. Imagine how much better it would work if it were you know, all public and, and write-downable and so on. Okay. Um, I actually do have one more question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so, you know, no state, no legal system. How would one stop murder then? If there's no consequence for it, there's no jails, there's uh, nothing. No, 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 see, see, no, but this is, this is a, it's a, it's a mistake that everybody makes. So, you know, I'm not going to single you out or anything like that. But the mistake is to say, the government provides X. If the government does not provide X, X will not be provided, right? So, so the government provides roads. So if the government doesn't provide roads, there will be no roads. That's not, uh, that doesn't logically follow. So uh, when you say no legal system, then what you're saying is, you know, negative consequences for breaking moral rules in society, whether they're to do with contract or property or respect for persons or, you know, so murder, rape or whatever. So the government currently uh, has mechanisms in place to deter and punish these behaviors, for sure, for sure. But to say if the government doesn't have sole responsibility for these things, then there's no conceivable way that they can be deterred or prevented in a free society doesn't logically follow. Because I think, I think everybody recognizes the need for the protection of persons and property in society. And so, but, but the tough part is to say, well, how, you know, how could it happen and should it even happen without the state? And uh, I think that there's many, many examples of how uh, these things have occurred very well without the state and even better without the state. So, I mean, I'll give you a sort of a very brief summation of, of one example, right? So, uh, a man who murders, uh, you know, this, the science seems to indicate and the, 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 the argument seems to go, the man who murders, uh, murders in part because he, he went through a terribly abusive childhood. Had a, he had a terrible childhood. He's beaten up or, you know, raped or some God knows what awful things happened to him as a kid. And that, that doesn't mean, of course, that everybody who goes through an abusive childhood becomes a criminal. But the vast majority of criminals self-report at least that they had these, these terrible childhoods. So clearly, if you want to get rid of murder, which I think is a good thing <laughs> to do, then the first place you would look at is improving childhoods. I mean, in the long run, right? Not, not some guy stabbed down the street or whatever. But in the long run, you would look at improving the quality of people's childhoods. And there's ways to do that. And I've got a, a chapter on the protection of children's rights in, uh, and again, the sort of free book, Practical Anarchy. But there's ways of doing that or incentives that would exist in a free society that would encourage uh, communities to get much more involved in a much more proactive way in helping parents 
to raise their children as peacefully uh, as, as possible. And so, you know, the key thing would be prevention. There may be people who have brain tumors or have head injuries that cause them to, I don't know, what do I know, but, but lose their, uh, the cognitive restraints and just act in ways that are completely bizarre. And uh, yeah, I mean, those people would probably be in more need of treatment than punishment. But uh, society would have a number of mechanisms by which uh, that could be... Um, uh, that could be controlled or, or restrained or whatever. So there's lots of, of different ways, but you know, a, a free society would be much more around prevention than uh, punishment. And uh, it's really important to not make the mistake of thinking that just because the government currently provides X, that X wouldn't be provided by someone else. It's sort of like before there was FedEx and UPS or whatever. When governments had a total monopoly on the mail service, it's like saying, well, if, if the government doesn't deliver the mail, the mail will never get delivered. Well, no, just other institutions will spring up to fulfill that human need in, in ways that would be almost impossible to imagine. Yeah, but then don't you enter in uh, greed or something? I mean, you, you're talking about... Uh, a law system, a legal system established by the people. And couldn't the people running it, you know, depending on conflicting interests or something along those lines, set up a whole legal system that could be considered immoral, more immoral than you would say it is now? Well, but who would want to be part of that legal system? Well, wouldn't I mean, let's, let's say, you know, uh, evil legality incorporated sends you uh, a brochure that says we have a really nasty, predatory, evil system. You know, would would you sign up with us so we can buy guns and steal from you? But you'd say, well, no, thank you, <laughs> right? Well, wouldn't the legal system encompass everyone? What do you mean? Well, how can you exclude someone from a legal system? Well, you call them a politician. I mean, politicians are regularly excluded from the legal system as it stands, right? So, oh, I mean, no. let's, not, let's not make the mistake of imagining that the, the problem of subjecting everyone to the law, right? I mean, George Bush can't – I think he can't travel to Switzerland now because they want to arrest him for war crimes or some group does, right? It's not going to happen in, in America, right? I mean, he's, a, he's above the law as far as, as that goes. So, yeah, I mean but, – but the reality is that, that the needs of – a legal system, for want of a better phrase, of a dispute resolution system, the needs will be driven by the preferences of the customers. And entrepreneurs as a whole will be racking their brains, you know, to, to figure out how they can best and most cheaply provide the kind of services and protections that people need. So those are way, and they'll be, of course, you know, I've, I've given some examples, you know, maybe... If, if It might be cheaper, for instance, uh, it might be cheaper to have televisions that are voice activated. Uh, and that way, if you steal them, you can't use them because you don't have the same vocal cords. So, yeah, I mean, just making, making stuff up completely out of my armpit. But, but these are ways in which you could prevent the incentive for theft. Of course, you want a society that is uh, as wealthy as possible, that has as much freedom as possible, because um, uh, you, you really want a society where – it, it just makes a hell of a lot more sense to get a job than to become a thief. And that is uh, – you know, a free society will 
grow at a prodigious rate in terms of its economy because we've seen that happening in other countries, uh, in Asia, uh, in, in India, in China, economic growth approaching 10% per year. I mean, if you if you can get an entry-level job at $75,000 and you only have to work four days a week and blah, blah, you can work you know, in your underwear for three of those days at home. If you, I mean, it, you, you want a society where there's as much economic freedom, as much economic possibility, as much economic growth as possible so that it just doesn't make much sense to go and, and steal stuff. Uh, and so, I mean, these are just sort of some examples about ways that, that you can think about it. Um, yeah, there may be people who exist outside the law. Um, yeah, maybe there'll be hermits who live in the woods, but you know, so what? I mean, if they live in the woods, who cares? But if they want to live in a city, they need the participation and interaction of other people in their society. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm really disliked of in my community, uh, maybe my grocer doesn't want to do business with me, or maybe, uh, the, the electric company doesn't want to give me electricity anymore and it's going to cut me off the grid. Like, there's lots of ways that society can deal with people it finds fundamentally offensive. It has nothing to do with having a massive state apparatus, national debt, uh, you know, the, 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 the war on drugs, the, 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 all of the stuff that goes on that, that is just terrible in the government. There's lots of ways that you can get society to self-organize or that society will spontaneously self-organize uh, without having to enter into this very dangerous contract of giving a limited group of people unlimited power over everyone. Because if greed, is an, if greed is an issue, right, this is an old argument, but if greed is an issue, then you can't have a state because the greedy people will gravitate to the state and you know, print all the money they want and, and all of that, right? Uh, and, and if greed isn't a big issue, then you don't need a state, right? So if, if people are susceptible to significant evil, you can't have a state because that's where the evil people will go and rule over the good people to the detriment of everyone. But if evil is not a significant issue in society, then you don't need a state. Uh, and so that's sort of the two, the two sides of the argument. Right. I just feel like racism, like bigotry could control that kind of thing. But I guess I could look into it more and figure that out. And maybe next Sunday I'll come in with more questions, you know, being more annoying. <laughs> Uh, sure. Uh, not at all annoying. I think your questions are great, and I certainly do appreciate going over them. So thank you so much. I think we have somebody else who wants to jump in just before the end of the show. But uh, thank you. Okay. Thank you for bringing it well, up. I, you. You know, I really wanted to uh, to give you props about uh, these questions. I think they're great. And uh, it is a very, very important thing to to be critical about any system of thought that you come across. So I really, really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks again. And this was my first time calling, and I loved it. So thank you. <laughs> ding, 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 bing, bing. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> some, some cool sound. It's such a cool sound here. But yeah. Well, thanks Absolutely. very much. We'll call back thanks. if you have more questions. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. My turn? Yeah, I'm on. Oh yeah, somebody said amazing for a high schooler and dude. I mean, seriously. I mean, the guy, the previous caller. I mean, I hope you get to listen to this uh, seriously brainiacy questions. Good for you. But sorry, go ahead. Okay, hi. Um, hi, Chris. How are you doing? It's Juan. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Thank you. Um, all right. So I've been talking to a couple of friends of mine here and on sort of FDR members lately, and uh, we've been we've been rolling over a topic which I think, or a question, I guess, which I think is. Well, it's really it's sort of really important for me in terms of like because uh, I'm sort of exposed to this all the time, right? And the question is, how do how do well there, there seems to be like let me just sort of give you the, the the what the topic is and then I'll ask you the question, which is there seems to be sort of like two types of communication, uh, at least for me and other members, which is 
like once we sort of start, uh, you know, talking to people in FDR, we get into the FDR podcast and listen to all the shows. We sort of learn how to uh, communicate in a very sort of honest and abstract and maybe uh, maybe intellectual way or, or very honest way. Uh, but uh, when we go and back, talk to when when like I, I go back and, and talk to people at school, they sort of don't have that that uh, that form of communication as much, right? The people are not usually as honest or don't have maybe the concepts or, or the or the or the knowledge of oh that sort of form of communication. So there's like another form of communication which is like small talk or sort of mainstream communication, right? Right. And uh, it seems to be sort of hard for me to to connect with people in the mainstream, right? And I understand that has to do with values and honesty on this kind of stuff. But I think that there's there's that there's there's other stuff like um, how to how to help people understand or how to how to be honest to people without sort of freaking you know, them out. Triggering their, sorry. Freaking them out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I guess the question is, how to close that gap between the FDR type communication and the mainstream type communication? What are some ideas for, of how to how to bring these ideas? How to how to be able to be yourself? And how to be for me to be able to be myself without having to uh, sort of be too foggy or, or like you know isolating my you know in the back of the classroom because I can't communicate with people as much as uh, as much as I can with other FDR members. That makes sense. Right. So let me just uh, make sure I sort of understand what you're what you're talking about. So uh, let's say you uh, you accept uh, anarchism as the logical application of the non-aggression principle. Right. So the shorthand. Let's say you're an anarchist, and you're uh, at a student pub, and people are talking about politics, and they say, "What do you think?" Right. And you say, no hable espanol, señorita, or whatever, right? <laughs> right, right. Or that right. African clicking language, you know, mbao, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to get lost in my slowly dancing hand puppets right about now. I hope that's okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Or, uh, yeah. hey, how about some lovely origami uh, with fiat currency, because that's all it's good for, or something like that, right? So how do you uh, how do you respond, right? Well, what do you do now? Uh, well, what I've been trying to lately, sort of like, I'll 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 drop in little like facts, you know, or things, or or, or maybe little ethical arguments of how how the whatever sort of solutions that the, that the politicians bring up are, you know, illogical and they don't have really credibility. But uh, that, that, that's one thing that I'll do. But people sort of recall from that. I, mean, like the, the, I usually won't get much of a response afterwards or they'll change the topic or something like that. Just generally, right? Not always, but, but generally. And But uh, something else that I've been doing is using, being, like speaking like, in more metaphoric, more metaphorical, sorry, using more metaphors to, to sort of convey what I mean. So instead of getting into the logic or to the facts or the arguments directly, I'll just throw out a metaphor, right? Which sort of reveals the logical contradictions or how... how uh, how to reason it, it actually it actually works, right? And that doesn't work in LA. Lately, people they tend to respond uh, to it better. Or I'll I'll say like you know I feel like I feel like whenever I come to school, it's like you know it's like I got like a big chicken. In, I don't know. Like we were debating on whether a chicken magical chicken exists or not. You know, like that would be an example, right? And then people are like, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I feel something like that too. It's like I don't understand what's going on, right? And then conversations will start from that. But uh, but they usually don't get too far. You know, and I would like to. I would like to sort of find ways to bring this stuff to people so that 
they're more enjoyable, right? So when I sit down and try to talk to people about maybe anarchism or some sort of logical ideas or virtue or stuff like that, conversations, and this could be my thing, of course, but the conversations seem to get really tense and like, you know, like, it's like you got to green your teeth to sort of get to a point and then they, they come up with, they're not exactly fluent in how to express their ideas and their experience. And so you have to like sit there and just wait for them to get it through. And they'll be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then just sort of reciprocate it, but it's not that productive. And I'm sort of like wondering what other ways, what other things I could do to, to get, uh, to, to, to have more success in that, I guess. Well, that's a, that's a very big question. And uh, so I'm going to take the smallest and easiest part of that question and then pretend <laughs> to myself later that I answered the whole thing. Does that sound like a, okay. a good plan? Sure, sounds good. I'll, I'll, I'll do the same for me. <laughs> right. look, look, the first thing that I would say is cut, cut yourself some enormous slack because you don't, you don't have control. Fundamentally, you don't have control over whether people are going to respond in a curious manner or a thoughtful manner, or a reasonable manner, or a thinking manner, or anything like that. What that means, what I mean is that you have some influence over it. In other words, if you, you know, if you grab them by the jacket and say, anarchism or death, join me brothers, let us run like lemmings over the hill to freedom, then the odds of you having a positive response are not only low, but you probably don't want a positive response from that kind of interaction, because that's pretty dangerous. So, yeah, so, so I would say that, you know, you, you can't, you can't make, right. You can't make it happen. It's like, it's like if you want to ask a girl out, there are things that you can do that will make it very unlikely that she will go out with you. Uh, step into my windowless van holding this cloth over your face would probably be one of them. Uh, but no, I mean, if you, if you, I don't know, if you show up, uh, uh, wearing a little Bo Peep outfit, uh, then it's less likely that she'll go out with you. And although, of course, if she did, that would be probably quite wild. Anyway, I mean, so stay stay on topic here, not to veer off into my pre-adolescent fantasies. But anyway, so, uh, you know, I mean, it's you, you can't make somebody give you a job, but you can show up neat and intelligent and well-spoken and prepared for the interview. So that would be... In my suggestion is as long as you're passing the bare minimum of you know this is this is a reasonable way to approach people with unusual ideas, then uh, then you cut yourself some slack and and recognize that the majority of these conversations will be unsuccessful in the presence of you. Sure. Right. That's that's important. Uh, 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 people will almost never change their minds in the moment, particularly about something as fundamental as, as virtue and, and society and law. And right. So, uh, like, I mean, the last caller, great guy, smart guy, really loved the questions. I mean, he didn't come off the call a voluntarist, right? Uh, but you know, he's got some hopefully reasonable things to think about and, and so on. And it took me a long time, although I'd never actually talked to an anarchist ever. Uh, or had any exposure to the ideas. So uh, that's probably why it took me so long and embarrassingly long it, it was too. But you, you don't have the power to change people's minds. And changing people's minds is, I mean, it's a misnomer because we can, only we can change our minds. And you can, you know, it is water wearing away stone sometimes. There are a few people who will jump up and say, you know, I get these emails like at, at least one a day of people saying to me, you know, you've, you've articulated what I've always 
felt and known but couldn't put into words. Uh, and I think that they're specifically talking about you in a Bo Peep outfit fantasy. So maybe they're talking about other things too. I don't know. But um, uh, so, so there will be a few people who will jump out of their chairs with Eureka. But, you know, that may happen once or twice in your lifetime. The majority of people, it's just, you know, ask some questions uh, and, um, uh, you know, maybe sow some doubt about the consistency of the existing system, uh, talk about uh, other opportunities, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't like the argument from a fact, but it, it has some value in opening up conversations. So if people say, well, I'm very much for, for public schools or very much for government-run schools, then, you know, the facts that I quoted earlier about how, you know, 50 million Americans read at a fourth or fifth grade level, that really can't be counted as successful. And people's reactions to that is, okay, well, we need more resources in the schools. And then you say, well, you know, school spending, at least federal school spending has jumped by more than 80% over the past 10 years, but the, the, the scores have not improved since the early 70s. So more money has not solved the problem. And, you know, U.S. spends more per capita than most countries and has very low educational standards to show for it. And so just some basic facts uh, will be enough. And some people will be interested and curious and want to go further into exploring those facts because they're empirically based and facts mean something to people. But for a lot of people, um, and again, the bomb in the brain part four, I think it is, uh, talks about this in more detail. For the majority of people, uh, ideology is serving a psychological need. It is not serving a philosophical need. It is serving a defensive need. It is not serving a truth need. And that can't be solved through debate. That you can't debate somebody into letting go of something which is serving a dysfunctional psychological need. At least that's my my belief. Uh, all that will happen is positions will harden and people will get tense and people will get defensive and so on. That's the, that's the tension that you feel. If we're dedicated to the truth at any cost, then new information doesn't make us stressed and tense and negative. But if our ideology is serving a psychological need, if it's a defensive emotional reaction to some bad stuff that we've experienced, which is what the science appears to show. Like, so for instance, Republicans generally have a much higher fight or flight amygdala response than Democrats, which means that they experience the world as a more fearful and dangerous place. Is that why they're so driven towards military spending? Well, there would be some good arguments as to say why that is. But if Republicanism, and there's obviously some stuff for Democrats too, and this is not anything to do with comprehensive, it's just something I'm pointing out. If it's true that you're talking to a Republican whose Republicanism is being driven by base of the brain amygdala and fear responses from early childhood traumas, then there's no amount of statistics that's going to overcome that, that brain issue. And so uh, those uh, people will probably not be very good candidates for philosophical conversations. So whenever you come into that tension, right, whenever you come into that tension – uh, you cannot continue the conversation, right, obviously. You can continue the conversation with as much honesty as you can muster in the moment. But what that means is you continue the conversation by saying, whoa, did you just, did you just feel that spike in tension when I brought this up? That's, that's really interesting. I've experienced that before. When I said X, Y, and Z just now, what was your reaction to it? What did you feel? Right? I mean, that's a very honest RTR in the moment kind of thing to, to, to express. Does that make any sense? Yeah, 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 totally. Wow, that's amazing. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of bringing it up, but like, 
just sort of pointed out the tension. I don't know why. <laughs> it's like, oh, scary. Let's just avoid the tension, right? But and that's, and that's, that may be the right thing to do. That may be the right thing to do. But uh, I, I think it should ideally be a conscious decision to to avoid it. But you should, I think, always at least have the option. Right. To, to be honest in the moment. And that can be somewhat startling to people, but it also can open up a very interesting conversation about what is really going on rather than the pretend world of politics, if that makes sense. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Yeah, I sort of found, like, I guess in a side note, I sort of found that that uh, whenever whenever I'm sort of, I start with honesty, people will reciprocate with honesty, you know, to whatever degree they can or to whatever degree they, it's appropriate, right? But uh, I, it seems to be like if, when you lead the way, people sort of follow, right? And, and uh, just generally always, but but that, that, that I think is a great approach. Um, and so so basically like, okay, so I, I, like, I like what you said. So, so, so the objective is, or the best thing to do is sort of like adjust my expectations, you know, sort of I sort of expect like success in moments, right? I don't think I don't think that that's, that, that that could happen either. But it's basically like um, my my teacher. She has a, a metaphor, uh, a really interesting metaphor. She says that uh, talking to people about ideas and things that are outside of their comfort zone is sort of like planting a seed, right? And you so you you you, you sort of throw a, a mental seed into their brain, and then you know a month or two later it'll sort of grow into a little tree, right? And they'll be like, hey, look, I got a, I got a leaf here, right here, right? I got a you know I'm I'm growing tomatoes off my head or something, right? <laughs> Right. right, and it could be like uh, I, I've had, uh, you know, you, you could say, well, certain the, – the war on drugs is dysfunctional or, or destructive or something like that. And maybe the person's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But, but then maybe they read a newspaper article about the number of people in prison because of the war on drugs and the amount of money that is – and maybe they just sort of connect back. You know, oh, yeah, that guy said – like you never know how these connections are going to be made or what, uh, or what occurs. So I just wanted to uh, – uh, to mention that certainly, if if you don't speak, then connections are probably not going to be made. But if you do speak, you're entering into the ecosystem of somebody else's entire intellectual, emotional environment, and that is um, uh, that is an exciting place to be. And you have you have little control uh, over what happens uh, outside of the minimum of being reasonable and approachable and and not weird, so to speak. Right. Right. And to remember that you, it's always perfectly valid to not uh, to to not engage in a conversation if you don't feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, don't uh, your anxiety is there to tell you something, and it's usually there to tell you something important. Uh, I, I've always strongly argued against feeling an obligation from philosophy to be philosophical because that is not the same as uh, as being free. You are free to not discuss. You are free to discuss. There is no existential obligation to spread the truth if you have the truth uh, because that is to say that philosophy carries with it uh, unchosen positive obligations. Uh, I think if you enjoy it, if you find it valuable, if, if it's exciting for you, then I think go for it. Uh, if, but, but trust your instincts in the moment. And I've, uh, you know, I say this from hard-won experience. I mean, there have been times when I have not trusted my instincts in conversations and later said, you know, I really should have. So uh, that is, um, uh, yeah, that that is a, a strong suggestion that I have. Because if you if you if you're overcoming your own emotional reluctance to engage in a conversation because you feel some sense of obligation, then you're not really being true to yourself, and uh, you're not really being honest because you can't say I'm going to have this conversation even though I feel really anxious and a strong desire not to. Right. So in a sense, you're quote violating the first rule of philosophy, which is that that honesty is the first virtue. Right. 
yeah, I think I think that's very important. I have to I have to really listen to this to sort of uh, get it get it more clearly. But I think um, I think that's uh, that, that's very true. But uh, just trust me. Ah, well, I get uh, I get emails from people in in very religious uh, communities, and they're like, you know, I'm I'm the atheist who dare not speak his name. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, there's no rule that says you got to get that tattooed on your forehead and, and engage in all of these destructive, non-productive, com- sorry, destructive, non-productive, redundant, these kinds of conversations. Uh, so I just um, – uh, and, and I think, you know, w- one last thing that I'll, I'll say, and I, this is nothing that I'm claiming is, is proven or whatever, but I, you know, I, th- I think we should be – we should be open to the possibility that it's it's a lot earlier than we think in terms of uh, phil- the philosophical progress of, of the world. Uh, I certainly have made significant mistakes uh, in terms of uh, 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 putting forward ideas that uh, I thought the world was more ready for than the world is actually ready for. And... There is, you know, just from a sort of strategic standpoint, there is the problem of of rushing. And, you know, if you're right, then you're right. But I think everybody needs to come to at least some tentative conclusion, or at least everybody needs to. I think it's valuable. I think it's helpful. I would put the case forward that it's useful and valuable and helpful to sit down and look at the evidence of your life, of your interactions, of your conversations – and say to yourself, where are we in achieving freedom? Where is the world in its receptivity to reason and evidence? How early is it in the process? How early is it in the journey towards a free and rational society? And I would argue that however early you think it is, it's probably earlier than you think it is. And that has ramifications, I think, in terms of uh, you know, what we do and what we speak and, and how we are in the world. And again, this is a big topic and I don't have any particular answers. And, uh, but, but I think that, you know, just, just to take a simple example, right? So uh, you know, Mises put forward the calculation argument and the Austrian theory of the business cycle and so on a- a- 80 years ago or more, 90 years ago. I think it was in the early 1920s that he wrote. And, you know, since then, uh, free market economists uh, with very powerful arguments have won Nobel Prizes and uh, and free trade is, you know, this, there's not a lot that all economists agree on, but but almost all economists agree on the idea that free trade is, is economically productive for everybody who participates, um, or at least for the parties who are free trading. Uh, and this has been accepted. I mean, you could go back to Ricardo and people like that, hundreds of Adam Smith, yeah, hundreds of years ago. This has been a generally accepted tenet of economics. And it has some impact on the way that governments organize their trade treaties and this and that and the other, right? But has it, even after hundreds of years and a near unanimity unanimity in the specialist profession, 
to what degree does do, do people understand free trade? To what degree is free trade accepted as a, a, a even just a, a pragmatically productive value or, or program to follow? Well, I would imagine that not one person in a thousand understands or accepts the arguments for free trade, either because they've never been exposed to them or they don't like them or they, they, they pick at them or they find some fault with them that isn't there or just dismiss them or whatever. And so even something as pretty technical and pretty specialized as free trade remains largely rejected by society several hundred years after it, arguments have been made for it. And I don't know the degree to which arguments occurred in the ancient world. They didn't seem to be very big on economics in the ancient world because when you have slaves, it's not really a big deal. But that's just sort of one, uh, one example. Uh, there are other examples where progress has been, I think, quite remarkably swift. Uh, one of the things, as I've mentioned before, that I really got out of my time in England as a child was the degree to which Europe understood, whether consciously or not, I don't know, but the degree to which Europe understood that uh, aggressive parenting had something to do with the Second World War. I don't think people could explicate it. They certainly didn't have the psychohistory research to back it all up. But I don't think there's been a bigger change in parenting than has occurred in many parts of Europe uh, over the past couple of generations to the point where now uh, in many uh, countries uh, spanking, spanking is is illegal, and uh, no hitting in schools and and so on. That's a a huge change, and that has occurred with great rapidity. But then, of course, it came out of the the biggest calamity and disaster that Europe had ever experienced. You know, forty million people dying in the Second World War. Not, of course, all in Europe, but a hell of a lot of them did. So when their society was entirely destroyed by war they did look at how to raise their kids. And as I've mentioned before, when my cousins would come to visit from Germany, they weren't even allowed to touch the toy guns that my brother and I were playing with. Uh, they simply were not allowed to play at war, which I'm not saying is the optimum solution, but there was a recognition of that. So in the absence of huge catastrophes, how quickly do people change? How quickly does society change? Well, uh, it seems to be pretty slow. It seems to be pretty slow. And I just really wanted to point that out, that I think we, it's very helpful and valuable to look in the mirror and say, okay, well, where is the world? Where are we as a whole in this, in this progress so that we don't get frustrated by trying to measure in miles that which can only be seen in inches so that we don't set ourselves goals that are empirically unachievable and which then create an environment of frustration and despair and hopelessness and a sense of, of, of guilt at not doing something right and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I, again, this is not an empirical scientific uh, answer that, that can be provided. Uh, there is, I think, some commonality in the information that we all have. But I do think that it's important to figure out for every one of us, where we think we are in the journey, is it earlier than we think? Is it more tentative than we think? Because I think that's going to have an impact on how we approach uh, the challenges of living a philosophical life. Sorry for that long speech. I hope, I hope that makes some sense. No, it was great. It was great to hear. 
Ah, all right. Well, here I felt I feel a sort of. I mean, I don't know how much how much time we have for this. I like to I like to sort of share my experience when you were of sure. uh, of uh, okay. Um, yeah, I sort of felt this this wave of despair, right? It's it's not it's not too strong, but uh, it, it is sort of wave of despair when I when I think that uh, you know when I explore the thought that that it's you know that it's <laughs> it's too hard or it's it's, it's not it's unlikely that. That, uh, that 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 we can do much changing the now, right? Um, I I'm gonna like because for me, like my future is pretty much I'm gonna be dealing with people for the next at least we, we like the general public because of the field that I'm going to. I'm going to social work right now, so you know, depending on what I do, I'm gonna be talking to people and dealing maybe with teenagers or 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 or, 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 or you know parents stuff like that. Depends on what I do, but I'm gonna be dealing with people constantly for the next man five ten years, right? And it's it's frightening. It's frightening to 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 believe that that uh, but, you know if it's true to accept that 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 I can't you know that that, that it's nearly sort of um, I don't want to say nearly impossible, but like you know very hard to reason with people, right? And to reason about things about with ethics about things as fundamental as ethics, right? So. And the, the other thing that, that I guess that I think is deeper for me than sort of just the, the you know communicating about freedom and anarchism or, or, or politics or, or, or child abuse or stuff like this is being able to sort of express my thoughts and my opinions freely, right? Which are so controversial to I guess a lot of other, a lot of people's opinions, right? And I, I don't want to feel like I'm sort of like I'm, I just have to, like I have to keep, like I have this bubble, right? That I live in this bubble, and I have to like push, you know, this bubble towards everyone and just keep them away from my bubble because they're too irrational or something, or because they're too, you know, does that sort of make sense? I'm not, I don't feel like I'm. I'm, I'm I think I get it, but uh, okay. I think I understand. But uh, just keep going to make sure that uh, we're on the same page. Okay, sure, sure. Okay, here I'll give you more a more tangible example. Um, I've been sort of. I just started school maybe like six months ago, right? And um, I've been going to school, and it seems like, like, uh, like I don't have much of a relationship with with almost anybody in school, right? I mean, I'm sort of like sitting sit in the back of the classroom, right? Uh, teachers talking, there's people around, you know, everybody sort of, you know, people have joke around and stuff like that, and I have less more need to be that sort of intimacy, your closeness. I mean, I think that. For obvious reasons, I think I mean I can't have that intimacy with them. If there's no sort of like honesty, right? Compared to the intimacy and, and and trust that I have with people from FDR, right? But I feel like I feel like scared. Like I can't I can't open up. I can't open up around uh, around people at school and stuff like that. And uh, there's the, like I found that I, I'll talk to some friends or some people at school, and and, and like I found that, that, that being able to have like open conversations is, is possible, but it's I don't know. I don't know. I'm getting foggy now. <laughs> Got it. Well, it's. Uh, it, it, I mean, not trying to put words in your mouth, but is it is it just scary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. Right. But and also, um, there's also. I mean, there's there's other factors like like uh, like where I'm coming from in my history and stuff like that. Like, like I've sort of, 
I've sort of just gotten out of my dad's house and stuff like that. There's a lot, lot so sort of, you know, and I don't want to get that, uh, you know, too, too, too deep into sort of my history and stuff like that. But I sort of come to from this background of, you know, pretty nasty, like verbal abuse, stuff like that. And so, and lots of like confinement, right. In terms of, in terms of how to live my life freely and, and, and sort of deal with the consequences of maybe, you know, like cooking my own food or, 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 or dealing with a bank or stuff like that. Right. And so, and, you know, organizing my, my, you know, and prioritizing my, my, my goals and stuff like that. Right. And so I feel like I just, I just jumped out of war. Right. And I'm like, you know, still wounded and, you know, my left, my have my weapons at home. Right. And I got to like still fight the lions and go find food at the same time. Right. And, and I have to like, I'm, I'm learning all the skills and all this kind of stuff. And I still, and I want to, I want to be able to communicate with people. And I want to be able to have some sort of relationship with people, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really challenging. And that's, that's, I think that's sort of what's motivating me to do this question is that how can I, how can I communicate? How can I, how can I close that gap? Right. Because when, when I talk to people in SDR, it's so fluid and it's so like, you know, it's so open and honest and so much so enjoyable and so motivating. Right. And, and when I talk to people outside of school, it's nice, but it's sort of cold and there's this sort of distance, right? And, you know, and, and the conversations can't go too deep, right? And, 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 you know, every topic switches every 20, 30 seconds, right? And, you know, there's no, there's no depth, right? And I know that I don't have much control over that, but I would like to find ways to sort of make that sort of more of a viable option, at least within the, the group that I'm at school right now and just sort of learn how to do it with, with other groups as well. But right. that's like I don't know if you know I don't know if that's sort of like a uh, a solution for like for the effect of it or I don't know like I don't know I I am ambivalent about whether this is something that I need to work on through my history or this is or this is something that I need to accept about reality or this is some some sort of lack of communication skills or something that I'm you know something that I'm missing you know like I'm I'm sort of like in the pendulum whether it's is it the world or me kind of thing right and and. Uh, does that does that sort of make sense? I'm not. Oh, it, like it makes complete sense to me. Um, and anybody who doesn't, anybody to whom it doesn't make sense, isn't I think living much of a philosophical life because I think that everybody who's really trying to live according to reason and evidence is going to sympathize and understand uh, exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I would certainly say that uh, uh, you know, given the history that you're talking about, that. You know, verbal conflicts and going in to mix it up uh, is is not uh, is not a good thing to do uh, at the moment, and and maybe not a good thing to do for like ten or fifteen years. Uh, that's you know, just I'm just who knows, right? I mean, this is just my my particular thoughts, which have nothing to do with what you should or shouldn't do or what's right or wrong. It's just my thoughts that uh, you need to. Um, you know, get right and at peace with yourself and to get right and at peace with all of that before taking on the world in this kind of way. It's okay uh, to, to live a philosophical life with friends and with yourself. You know, I think that's perfectly fine. And there's no fundamental necessity and in fact, I think you could argue that's really counterproductive to to go out and try and change the world. I mean, particularly with the with this kind of history. That uh, you know, we are not missionaries. We are not missionaries. You know, we are not here to uh, to heal the ills of the world. We're not like a 
a surgeon, I mean, I've used metaphor occasionally, but we're not surgeons when somebody's choking to death. Because those are unambiguous uh, situations. And uh, nobody's going to have a problem with a surgeon who does an emergency tracheotomy and saves a guy's life, right? So uh, I, would, uh, I would definitely take it easy. Uh, I would definitely work on my friendships uh, and my peace of mind and my comfort level within my own skin and working at healing some of the pains of, of history uh, long before I would even think about going out to mix it up in the world and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, you, you know, don't, don't drop one combat for another. That would be my, uh, my strong suggestion. Sorry, could you just repeat that? Don't, don't drop what? Don't drop one combat for another. Don't drop an inadvertent combat that you may have had with your family for a choosable combat like with the world. Yeah, I think I think I was uh, sort of afraid that, that that I was just recreating my, you know, my my history by trying to find you know and and debate the world, right? And I think right. that I really I really appreciate you bringing that up, just pointing that out. Yeah, yeah, I want to I want to I want, you know I want to learn love I want I want to fall in love with myself first before I want to try to to save the world. But it's such temptation, you know, it's so. Do I know? Yes, I know. I know. I do know that temptation, and I have. Uh, uh, I would not for a million years say that I haven't succumbed to it on more than one occasion. But uh, I'm sort of, you know, given that the world is is not particularly accessible to reason, then. You know, maybe it's maybe it is only a kind of love that will work. I mean, this is just stuff that I'm mulling over, so I don't have any particularly good answers as yet. But I'm leaning more towards, uh, you know, I've I've had my share of combativeness uh, over the years, and I think combativeness works. But combativeness only really works when uh, there uh, is enough of a momentum that uh, you can really get things moving, and so that. Uh, that I think is is not empirically where the world is. So I'm sort of viewing things, you know, from the lens of. I'm, it's not manipulative because I'm sort of genuinely feeling it, but viewing things from the lens of uh, maybe it is just a kind of uh, uh, a, a peace and love that. Uh, I mean, cliche though it may sound, a kind of peace of love, a peace and love that is going to move things forward. And maybe there is, uh, maybe it's too soon for, uh, uh, you know, that kind of charging up the hill at top volume kind of stuff. Yeah, I uh, just to not to bring too many more metaphors, but uh, I was thinking the other day that that I just I, I feel like I've like I said I feel like I've just escaped war, right? And I don't I don't I don't feel like I'm ready to jump into the trenches just yet. But, but right, and I would I would trust and respect that feeling, and I, I I would suggest that you trust and respect that feeling in yourself. Right. Right. Wow, what a what a great conversation. Short, and quick, but very deep. <laughs> I'm very glad that it was helpful. I'm very glad that it was helpful. Yeah, I guess the, the last sort of question that's in my mind right now is: um, I heard uh, I heard you mention uh, on on your well, one of the podcast the podcast or interviews that you had. Uh, one of the last ones was with uh, I think it was called on unusually asked questions or something like that, and um, 
you said that that laughter is a very it's a very powerful weapon against uh, sort of uh, abusers or the ruling class or you know uh, yeah just uh, let's say abusers right uh, because it's such an unafraid thing right and now sort of like mulling over the idea I guess of of maybe bringing a more comedic like a more humoristic you know twist to philosophy right and see how how that would turn out at least just for my own enjoyment right and and uh i don't know what do you, what do you what do you think about that i think it's great um, and I, I i don't claim that that's an original i think i got that off john lennon's interview with the 14 uh, year old kid from his hotel room so i'm not going to claim that as an original insight uh but um right. yeah i th- i think that uh, it is uh i think it is i think it is an important and it can be a very a very healthy thing uh, and it is it is an unafraid thing for sure so yeah, I would definitely. I've been working to try and, in my own ridiculously amateur way, try and work a little bit more comedy into some of my uh, my speeches, uh, just because I think that it is okay to, and can be very helpful to approach things from that standpoint. Yeah, and to your credit, you're hilarious. Like every joke oh, that you thanks. make, even if you're like, oh, it's not that funny, you know, I'll just crack up and laugh for you know 15 minutes and chuckle all over the joke. So it's well, really it's I appreciate that. Cool. Which yeah. means I'm very funny, or you have no sense of humor. So we don't know if it's the world <laughs> or you again, right? <laughs> just to mention. Yeah, either way, either way, if it's my thing, I'll, I'll I'll stick with that one. I like that little gap. Beautiful. <laughs> Quite enjoyable. Yeah. So, well, listen, okay, thanks. Well, it was a great great conversation, and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that you will. Uh, uh, you know, t- take it easy in the world, and uh, you know it's very, very important to to pace yourself, to not tilt at windmills, and to constantly be open to better or different ways of uh, uh, of communicating if that's what you're sort of into uh, at the time. So I hope that you will uh, you will take all of that on. And thank you so much for bringing up uh, you know, a very, very important and uh, and powerful topic. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would love to to sort of explore. Maybe. I mean understanding and accepting sort of like the ideas that we talked about, but I'd like to explore this more too, because I, I don't think this is sort of my own, my own sort of challenge, but I think that, that, that it is, uh, I think that it, would, that it is useful to sort of find ways to, to, to communicate this more though. Yeah, maybe we'll, uh, we think, can do a conference call about it. I think that would be, I think a lot of people would probably have a similar interest. Sure, sure. I like that. And thank you. Thank you so much. Great conversation again. And thank you so much for all your work and, and everything that you're doing. And I look forward to seeing you on the, on the barbecue soon. Absolutely. And uh, thanks, everybody, for your interest. A great, great set of callers, as always, this week. It is an uh, absolute highlight of my week to be able to split, split brain atoms with such uh, uranium-enriched consciousnesses. Oh, dear, that metaphor just completely fell over. And what a sad way to end the show. <laughs> but there it is. We're out of time. Thanks, everybody. Feel free to donate at freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. And uh, I will talk to you soon. <laughs>